This is the Movie Hall of Fame Dealer's Choice Volume 2 here on the Movie Hall of Fame for Thursday, September 16th, 2021. I'm Nico across the table from me. The Mrs. Miller to my McCabe. Okay. The, the, the Mitchell to my Weeby. What? <laughs> I don't know. The Hitler to my poor Russian boy living in oh, the God. Soviet Union. <laughs> I don't know, Adam. I'm sad today. Yeah, I'm sad too. I'm really fucking sad. It's a bad day. It's a bad day. <laughs> we, we, we also um, totally screwed up. We, we have a dealer's choice volume too. We don't have a single sequel on here. Good point. So that's an issue, but whatever. It's it's fine. Listen, we'll live. the world screwed up because they let Norm Macdonald go at the age of 61. Yeah. And I am like really devastated by this news. Yeah, I was upset too. First of all, because I didn't see it coming in any way, shape or form. Apparently, uh, but whether we're recording this on uh, Tuesday, it's Tuesday afternoon. So the news broke like two, three hours ago. Uh, the guy apparently like had cancer for 10 years and didn't tell a soul, mm-hmm. um, and had been fighting it and he was young. I mean, 61 is really young these days. Um, didn't have any of the vices or bad habits that you would think stars would have, um, that would lead to an early death. Like when Prince died, for example, I mean, it was shocking, but not surprising, mm-hmm. uh, and so that one was like really devastating. But again, like, oh, OK, that makes total sense. This one was just like I, I wasn't prepared for the day that Norm Macdonald was going to die. Uh, and it's just like it's brutal. I didn't yeah. know it would hit me as hard as it did. Like, this is like one of my dudes. Like, this, yeah, this guy just like speaks my language and I'll make a video about it. I think probably tomorrow or Thursday, um, like really delving into the reasons why he meant so much to me. But oh. go ahead. Speak on it. I mean, I don't, it's funny talking about that as, as, as Norm Macdonald is, as this guy that sort of felt like he float, he would float in and out of everything. And it was just like this highly unique comedic mind that is, you know, it's all, it, I, I mean, Jesus, I'm talking about like deadpan humor for anything. <laughs> There's no, just no, no one, one else better. likely, no one else like him. I was just listening to compilations of him on the way over. And even when he wasn't just doing stand up routines, just him talking with Larry King about stuff. Oh my, oh God, my God. It is <laughs> funny, man. But you know, it's, it's very sad. I mean, there are, you know, there are comedians out there that have, you know, we've seen repeats of them before. There's going to be a lot of Woody Allen's out there, sure. you know, which are a f- lot of imitators, a lot right? of imitators, but Jesus, there's no one else quite like Norm. And therefore there are no imitators. It, there's a great line from, uh, um, that that the the music critic and actually cultural critic Chuck Klosterman wrote um, about Jimi Hendrix and about the idea that Eddie Van Halen was the most copied guitar player, most influential guitar player of all time, and that's because no one was able to imitate what Hendrix did. You know, so like Hendrix is the greatest, but you can't copy Hendrix, so he's not as influential, right? And yeah, I think that's the thing with Norm Macdonald. Like, no one could quite do what he could do. No one could deliver a punchline in the way that he delivered it because no one understood it yeah no one got it it was really like this this naturally occurring like element that Mm. yeah like that scientists will be studying for years (laughs) and you can't really unpack it it's like splitting the atom you do it and then just the whole thing (laughs) blows up and you're just you're you're down a city and that's essentially the case with norm mcdonald like 
imitate him at your own peril. Do a Norm Macdonald impression at your own peril. <laughs> we don't need to try to do that. We don't need to mine for more Norm Macdonald. That would take away from what made him so great, you know? Right. I, I'm okay with, like, not unpacking what made that guy so brilliant. I'm, I, you can do it to an extent, but the inherent qualities and, like, like I said, those very unique, specific things that are so him. Like, I can't fully describe all the reasons why he's funny. It's just his ability to play with the expectations of an audience with a joke and to turn a phrase and to just make you think the joke's going to go one way, but right. it goes the other way <laughs> is just brutal. <laughs> and his love of setups too. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, he used to talk about his joke writing style. Um, he would talk about how on Saturday night live, he would try writing jokes that had the same punchline mm-hmm. as the, um, as the setup. Like he just repeated the detail twice and that would be the the um the joke and like that would be sort of like a challenge for him uh i don't know if you've ever seen the conan o'brien the moth. moth yeah i've seen it right i mean if you just want a study of how to do like joke telling long form joke telling that's it just put that in the freaking smithsonian man and just study that thing for <laughs> decades <laughs> like just so brilliant on a on a, the light was on joke. I mean, the punchline of that is just so silly and ridiculous <laughs> for, for, for something that's not, it shouldn't be worth that punchline for right. how long the fucking joke is. <laughs> but but the, the punchline is not what's funny about that joke. Really? No, it's not at all. <laughs> it's, co- it's the commitment to the joke. That is so funny. And it's him too. Yes. It's his unique delivery. Yeah. I mean, you could just listen to that guy narrate the Bible. You could listen to him narrate tax returns, whatever. Like that guy, there's no one like him. There really was like you watch the celebrity Jeopardy sketches and oh he does God. Burt Reynolds and like that's not what Burt Reynolds sounds like <laughs> at all. That's not Burt. There's nothing Burt about that impression at all. Nope. It's Norm doing his own sort of impression. He's like impersonating himself. <laughs> the sort of casual. Yeah. He's chewing gum. Hey, what do you want? Got the big hat on, whatever that means. <laughs> yeah, I got this big hat on. Turd Ferguson. Turd Ferguson. Yeah, that's my name now. How do you drop that guy in a lab? How do you write that guy? How? How? You You can't. You don't. But what I was saying before, though, with the way he is just so, I I guess, like deliberately against the grain. I mean, he's sort of a, a, I guess you you could call him a troubled comedic figure over the years or controversial in a way with how he's sort of, I don't know, lashed out against the system in various forms or maybe not even lashed out. I don't know if he did it intentionally, but many, many instances where it's like people didn't want him. And that's upsetting. Well, he made O.J. Simpson jokes and the head of NBC when he was on SNL was friends with O.J. Simpson. So according to Norm, he got fired from SNL because of that. Because he made an O.J. Simpson joke. Yes. (laughs) Well, continual O.J. Simpson jokes after warning. (laughs) Just didn't give a shit. That's more what it was. After being warned, he told them anyway. So like, yeah, I just think there is a, um, you know, he was a thoughtful guy. No question about it. Like a really smart, thoughtful, sensitive guy. But in the world of comedy, and this is what makes great comedians, there's just a total irreverence for uh, decorum and like, you know, the rules of engagement. Like you just have to go for it. And like nothing was too serious with him. Like everything was sort of fodder for, you know, poking at and prodding and satire. Well, that's the job of a comedian or should be anyway. Like nothing's really what it used to be at least anyway. But he felt impenetrable. He felt like sort of a last vestige of that idea. One of them for sure. There's still a few around, but not as maybe not as like vocal as he was, I suppose. And that's kind of why the death for me, you know, 
hurts so much. Yeah. It's like, he's just this voice that you feel like could live forever. And it feels like it, his entire career has been defined by deflecting all of that. Right. And now he's gone. So <sighs> yeah, I'll, I'll talk more about it in the video that I make. And I'm sure I'll be talking about Norm for several weeks, but I, I know you don't give a shit about this movie, but one of the reasons Dr. Doolittle means a lot to me is because of Norm McDonald's. <laughs> Fair film. enough. It's the first time I ever knew who he was. Fair he, enough. he voiced a dog and you know, part of my childhood. <laughs> Yeah, no, he was recently in the movie Klaus, that Netflix uh, oh, he told me about movie. That. Yeah, yeah. It's a really delightful movie, but he has the standout voice performance mm. in that. In a movie with like J.K. Simmons and other like really talented voice actors, uh, Norm is just indistinguishable, man. Like, I, 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 but well, yeah, but, but to, to get to like a more superficial point, though, that voice, too. Right. <laughs> like, this is just another reason why he was just so fun to listen to. Just, I could just listen to that voice all fucking day. What a voice. Uh, love it. What a voice. Yeah. One of my dudes, um, Me too. just like, I was really just shook by that. Um, it's kind of a dude fa- friend and cheese of a favorite of my entire family. Yeah. Like we all love him. My brother loves him a lot. My brother loves him. My yeah. father loves him. Yeah. And I think that's the thing. I'll tell this story on the video, but I went to go see Norm. You did in Phoenix, uh, a couple years ago. As a matter of fact, I went, Let's see, what year was that? 2018? So three years ago, not too long wow. ago. And I'm so happy that I got to see it. It was at a small, intimate comedy club, and I had like a really nice seat. And it was not like a packed show by any means. Um, we actually went down there. My friend and I had just flown into Phoenix. We had nothing planned for the week. We're just like, let's just go and have a good time, whatever. And um, we, we the, the night that we got there, we just checked, is anybody performing downtown? Is there something to do? And I saw Norm MacDonald was at this comedy club. <laughs> and we're like, all right, let's go. I mean, we didn't get tickets. Like, maybe we could scalp some. We can go down there and make it work because there weren't any available online. So we assumed that they were just sold out. We go right at the gate, like, or at the what, ticket booth. Yeah, we got plenty. When do you want to see him? First wow. show or second show? I go, wow, I didn't realize that, you know, Norm wouldn't draw a packed house like this at a small comedy club. And I mean, I think that's one of the great things about Norm, too, is he feels like one of the one of the guys. Yeah. One of the guys that like only the cool guys know about. Like you really (laughs) got to be, you know, if you're into Norm McDonald, that means like you're in the club. And if you're not, then you're just one of the other guys. But, you know, Uh, but so we get the tickets and we go and we watch the show and he just goes on for two hours. It's just like this freewheeling (laughs) set. It was the most indulgent (laughs) sort of like. Like, you know, just Norm being Norm, just like going off into the abyss and like you need a flashlight to follow him and then eventually you're going to lose him because he's just in Norm land. Right? <laughs> and uh, the first hour, super tight. Everybody's laughing. Everybody's excited. The, the room is not packed, but like, you know, it, everybody's into it. By hour two, people are walking out. Wow. You know, he's not getting the laughs. There's a lot of silence. And, you know, everybody's getting restless. You can sort of feel the energy like he's just going on for too fucking long. And I'm sitting there crying, laughing. I'm laughing so fucking hard. And the more he's bombing, the more I'm laughing. Like, it's just, and my buddy's sitting there. He's like, what, what are you laughing? I'm like, this is not, this is like really like out there edgy shit. And I'm just laughing and fucking laughing. And about 20 minutes are left in the show. We're at at least an hour and a half, if not longer. And Norm then turns the audience because he realizes like the energy in the room. And he goes, you know, I don't know if you guys realize this, but uh, the show ended an hour ago. <laughs> <laughs> I'm keeled over in my chair 
and I'm it, it's in this moment it's one of the few moments where I'm like this dude uh, is speaking a language that only I understand that's brilliant and it's that was one of those moments it's like there's only a few performers like that there's only a few artists or musicians or directors like when they make something mm. it's just for you yep and I know the mean. world fades away and you, it's only you that understands it and it's only actually only you and him that understand it and it's like you're having a conversation between the two of you that's what i look for a lot too right i love that and that was just one of those moments for me i mean it was just like such a special show wow. it was only funny to me and to no one else um and God, I just fucking love the guy. I just really, he's just for me. He's just for me, this dude. And he's gone and I'm going to miss him so goddamn yeah. much. I really am. Well, so that's that. I was going to do a whole thing about Michael K. Williams too. Yeah, that's, that, that, that's not something I'm, at, I'm nearly as familiar with. I mean, I know who he is, but you know, I'm not as well versed in the wire as you are. So Right. Um, you know, he died. That was like a really tragic death. Yeah. He died of a fentanyl uh, overdose. Um and yeah, I mean, the, that guy was 54, also too young, also yeah. had like another 10 brilliant performances ahead of him mm-hmm. and maybe an Oscar ahead of him or whatever. He was just nominated for an Emmy for his work on um, the, the show Lovecraft Country. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, I just think, uh, I mean, speaking about originals, this dude had a scar on his face. <laughs> I, I mean, if you want to understand like what it means to be an actor and what it means to deliver a brave performance yeah to just go out there and, and on the tightrope where no one has the courage to follow you i mean there is no greater symbolism than a dude with a scar on his face now oh, yeah i mean like he was literally, <laughs> literally. a guy <laughs> that let all of his scars lay bare and just you know put all of that life experience and all of those demons into his performances mm. um speaking of norm there is no performance there is no character like omar little in the history of moving picture and there will never be a performance like that it, it is just a, a character that um you know if you do dream it up you're never going to get it made mm-hmm. and david simon drew that character up and he found the perfect guy to do it and the the show got made um and he's just a guy that's going to live it, you know as this tragic figure but also as this iconic character and i love him and everything he's you know really good in boardwalk empire a show that sort of fell off in the last couple seasons but he was always a bright spot of that show uh he was really good in inherent vice um he was really good in uh, in 12 years a slave i mean yeah. a, a guy that just constantly showed up and it's like who the hell is that guy because again he had a scar on his fucking face <laughs> uh but the guy had just so much like humanity and his delivery was impeccable and unique and original and one of a kind. And um, everything that I just said about Norm MacDonald, I will say about Michael K. Williams in that that guy, uh, you know, God only makes one of them, I guess. Yeah. You know, brilliant, brilliant actor. Uh, and it's been a really bad week. Jeez. I was going to say, we're starting off like quite, quite low here, man. Yeah. You know, we have some upsetting movies on this list. <laughs> As the other writer. <laughs> it's like, well, it's not. <laughs> Let's remind our listeners. We, we will be talking about come and see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, the, well, we'll, we'll get through it. There's some, there's some high points here. There's some more uplifting. Yeah. There's, there's an uplifting. Yeah. Well, we'll do our best. <laughs> I see exactly one, maybe two uplifting movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, two. There's two uplifting movies. <laughs> the rest are quite, uh, yeah, yeah. Really bleak. Yeah, really bleak. Uh, all right, let's just get into it. Let's talk movies. Um, 
we uh, do this every so often. It's dealer's choice. It's actually the second time that we've done it. Um, and you nominate three movies. I nominate three movies. And these are movies that we have not nominated before. They are from movie years that we have covered. Uh, but for some reason, they just sort of slip beneath the cracks or we saw them after we did the particular podcasts. And so now this is a chance for us to right the wrongs mm. and induct one of them into the movie Hall of Fame. That's what that's that's cool. Yeah. That's cool. Because. Some of these, and this is the upsetting thing, especially with with one in particular, I saw it after the fact, and I was like very annoyed with with myself for not seeing it sooner. Like when we talked about like the year of 1985 and then I saw the movie, it was just like, what are we even doing? (laughs) (laughs) Who are we? We did a, we did a best of 1985 list and it didn't have this movie on the, on there. And I'm like, "Uh, okay, Adam, right. (laughs) Go to hell. (laughs) Right. It's like, how do you guys call yourselves a movie podcast? Exactly. That's what it is. It's like, yeah, the the gall, the unmitigated gall. (laughs) That does happen sometimes. Seriously. It does. But you know, so, uh, yeah. Okay. So we're going to start with your three nominations and then we'll get to my three. Uh, these happen to be in chronological order. Um, I happen to pick the, 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 the latter three movies and, uh, we'll put one in the movie hall of fame. That's oh, kind of cool. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Neat. So we'll start with, uh, your first nominee. It's called McCabe and Mrs. Miller from 1971 written and directed by Robert Altman. Starring Warren Beatty and Julie Christie, mm-hmm. nominated for Best Actress in a Leading Role. That's Julie, Julie Christie's nomination. A gambler and a prostitute become business partners in a remote Old West mining town, and their enterprise thrives until a large corporation arrives on the scene. <laughs> AFI called this thing the number eight greatest Western of all time, according to AFI. Um, perhaps I quibble with the definition of Western. Um but uh, go ahead, speak on it. Yeah, yes and no. I mean, yeah, it's a Western. Yeah. It's a Western with asterisks after the term. It is the first Robert Altman film I ever saw. I guess you could say I saw it in film school, mm-hmm. in whatever you would call my film school. But this was something that was suggested to us when we were covering the films that sort of changed their era or highly influenced a genre. Is sort of the turning point of film in a lot of ways because this came out in 1971. It is post Bonnie and Clyde. And that whole attitude in cinema is really, really taking off. Uh, but there's... Uh, you know, uh, for it comes at a point where it's like the idea of a Western just feels sort of dated and people don't really respond to what they're about the, or the heroic qualities of them. They're just not in that mindset, particularly because of Vietnam, obviously. Uh, well, heroics are like virtue, virtuoist, virtualistic, vir- virtuistic. There you go. <laughs> Virtu- That's the word. Virtuism? I don't know. Virtuistic. Virtuous. The virtuistic qualities of, there we go. of the stories and of these characters and really like judging what they're worth. Um, and this is another one of those movies to do that in the most Robert Altman way you could possibly imagine. Definitely. Um, you know, it's the, the two I think we were comparing this to when we studied them was uh, uh, The Wild Bunch and and yeah, and this one and they're. <laughs> It was so different. Very different. So completely different in, in like virtually every way. Um, but, you know, I had been thinking about it ever since we did Nashville because I hated Nashville so much. Right. And I just remember what happened, Robert Altman. I really liked McCabe and Mrs. Miller. What is this? Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I, I dig this movie a lot. It's not my favorite film on the list, but 
You know, I I just thought with with our history with Robert Altman at this point, it's it'd be you know it would behoove us to not at least discuss you know one of his more. I, I guess this is one of his earlier like greater achievements, if that makes sense. You know. Yeah, I, I think it's actually his first. Well, no, Mash is his first hit, right? Yeah, yeah Mash yeah. comes out in 1970. Is so, that right? Okay, okay. Yeah. yeah so this is a, a year. Yeah, a year after the fact. Um, so his, his second major hit. Uh, then Bruce McCloud comes after, and that's like sort of a, a beloved movie critically, but didn't do like great at the box office. Um, and actually, the the I mean, I, I don't know how the other ones did. Uh, I I wouldn't necessarily think of him as like a big box office draw of a, of a filmmaker. <laughs> he did it, do Popeye. He did do Popeye. That's true. <laughs> so yeah, Altman uh, is an interesting guy because, as you said, everything that Altman does is in some way, shape, or form going for subversion. Um, it's, it's trying to, uh, sort of rewrite the tropes of genre. He works in a lot of different genres, similar to the Coen brothers in that way. Like, uh, you know, he sort of, uh, picked apart the noir film in the long goodbye. He picked apart war films in mash. He picked apart really every genre in, uh, the player, right? So the guy is always interested in looking at the old school Hollywood tropes of like, this is how a hero's journey is supposed to go. This is what a climax is supposed to look like. This is how I'm supposed to shoot an action sequence. And he's like, what if we did it this way? (laughs) Yeah. Um, which like, is awesome. Like I, I fucking love Robert Altman movies now. Yeah. I, you know, <laughs> now you've discovered that you do. Yeah. yeah I, I adore Robert Altman movies. Uh, he's become sort of one of my guys, uh, even though like his style might not be for everybody. And I, I do think your mileage may vary if you go into this looking for a Western, um, because you're not really going to get one. No. <laughs> Westerns traditionally are hot and sweaty, like yes, Sergio yes, Leone, like the um, Once Upon a Time in the West starts with this like incredibly sweaty, humid scene at a train station. This one is wet and cold and cold <laughs> and snowy. Yeah. And like there's dew dripping from the trees and the climax is in the middle of the snow. It was shot in Canada. It takes place in Seattle mm-hmm. or at least like a, a town outside of Seattle. So, you know, in, in that way, it's certainly not traditionally Western. Um, it's about this profession that is not in any way noble. No, nope. uh, it's about prostitution. It's about gambling, the business <laughs> machinations of gambling and prostitution. Yeah. But it's not looked at with a judgmental eye in any way. It's kind of tender and sweet. <laughs> at times it is kind of there's a love scene where McCabe and Mrs. Miller have sex and Mrs. Miller charges McCabe for the sex because she's a prostitute and that's what you do. Like nobody, uh, nobody rides for free here. So, uh, you know, in that way, like it's about, about a hero that's kind of engaged in a skeezy business and there's not a ton of violence. Like there is a shootout at the end, but it's about like a bumbling buffoon that isn't good at killing and like falls over himself and gets shot and, like there's the, the the scene, of course, the big sort of standoff with the character in the second with the, the, the main character and the villain in the second act. Yep. And the villain turns to one of the guys in the bar and is like, that dude never killed anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just completely antithetical to the man with no name. John Wayne, traditional Western hero uh, up until the ending. That's kind of sad and bleak. I mean, it's a very mournful, lethargic movie, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, to to everything it discusses. I mean, even when you cut to the scene with like the the drifter who comes in the town and just wants to you know hook up with some girls, and it ends with him just being killed for basically no reason. Mm-hmm. And it's you know it, 
it's a setup for what is traditionally a shootout scene where, you know, there's a standoff and people are arguing and just tensions boil and you can just feel it. But it's an understanding between two characters. And then this is a moment where one of the guys is just trying to get the guy to make a move so he could pass off shooting him. Right. It's the sleaziest shootout I've ever seen in a movie. Yeah. And it's so upsetting. Um, and I think the great contrast with this and something like uh, the, the like Peck and Paws, the Wild Bunch. You know, it's you know as as angry as uh, the Wild Bunch is at westerns. It very much is a western, and, yes. it, and often does fall into some of those tropes to the point where it's like Peck and Paw chooses to end the film with a blaze of glory, essentially. And the, the big difference I realized on reflection of this is like, okay, you have one movie that kills the Western with, you know, with a, this horribly violent and painful shootout. And that's how the Western goes. Whereas this one goes with a whimper in the snow. Yeah. Th- this one puts the Western <laughs> in hospice care. Yeah. It's, it's dead. It just no, it bears it in the snow. Right. It's gone, man. Yeah. 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 But it's like the, the most like perfectly anticlimactic way to go. You right. know, it's really, it's it's just it doesn't give a fuck about westerns. Though. It doesn't. It's really like kind of like you guys are morons. You're stupid. This is what you deserve. There's such an above it all quality to it, you know. Which I, I, I again, like you said before, your mileage is certainly going to vary on something like that if you're going into it expecting, you know, I don't know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Mm-hmm. You know, I think maybe I did when I first saw it. I was expecting more of those ideas. I mean, I'd never seen an, an Altman film before, so that was part of it. Right. You know, and it, when you, it takes you a moment to figure out that the film is spitting in the face of most of that. And, you know, I, at a certain point, I just kind of vibe with it. I like this setting and I love these people and I like kind of building this town with them, you know, which kind of makes the ending more upsetting, you know? Yeah. There, there's a distance to a lot of Robert Altman films, not just in like the way the camera operates, but in the, you know, it's distance to its characters, uh, you know, a lot of the time. Um, it, not to say that Robert Altman doesn't like his characters because it seems like he likes most of his characters, but there is a sort of, um, judgmental is maybe not the word, but, but there, there's definitely like a sort of satirical tinge to it. Like he's, he's always sort of prodding his characters and breaking them down and, t- and needling at them. Uh, and I, I think that's sort of what happens here. It's weird. Like you, all the Altman stuff is, is in there. The, the, the zooms, the pans, the sort of all of that style behind the camera, but it's also very sort of voyeuristic in that way. It's like, it's both stylish and realistic at the same time. <laughs> yeah. I and that you're that, just yeah. sort of watching these characters from a distance, do their thing. Dialogue is, is, uh, you know, layered on top of each other. Um, mm-hmm. you know, they're characters that just interrupt and they're talking in the background and like, you don't have the normal shot reverse shot like you do in, in movies of the era. It's just sort of the cameras there and it just sort of pans around this very full room with lots of conversations happening at once. So it's realistic and it's sort of documentarian, but it's also very stylish because it's Altman and he just <laughs> can't help but move the camera around. Uh-huh. So what you get as a result of that is a movie that is very textured and like it's a world that is very lived in, yep. but you never really quite get in the psyche of these characters heads um, you, you never really get to walk around in their shoes. You're always sort of watching them from a distance. And by the end of this, you're looking at Warren Beatty dead in the snow and you're like, <laughs> yeah. oh, that poor bastard, as opposed to I just lost a friend. I mean, yeah. I mean, whether that long, last shot is a zoom from a distance to, you know, further emphasize, you know, your point exactly. Right. So, you know, I, I actually found myself through a lot of this movie. I did like the movie a lot, but I found myself being like, why aren't we getting more of the relationship between McCabe and Mrs. Miller? They're in the title, but they 
Like, don't really spend that much time together talking about anything. Never mind their romance. No, no, it's um, interesting. And it's, inter- you know, uh, Roger Ebert wrote about this, and I think it's actually a good point. They stylized the title not with an and in the middle, but with an ampersand where, uh, you know, it, where you would use the word and for a relationship as a couple. You use this as if they're business partners. It's yeah, like a it's law like, firm. Yeah, like a town. Right. Uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller as if you're going to put that on the, the, the name of the building. Right. Yeah. So, it, you know, there is a sort of incorporated professional feel to their relationship. And I think that caught me off guard because I was expecting sort of this Western romance and what you're left with is just like two people that care about each other, but they kind of care about their business and their money a little more. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. And maybe that's part of the point. I think my, I, I, I don't know, like, like I probably should have rewatched this, but I, I think I remembered it enough. I think, you know, it's a question of like, what is this movie coming down on? Is it just Westerns or, or is it also those towns that all those, you know, Western heroes invade, you know, mm-hmm. is it both, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> It's a strange thing to come down on this altogether because these were real people. Yes. (laughs) I don't have an issue with like taking like a personal story and looking at these people. It makes me wonder what the film would have been like if it was more intimate, Mm. you know, but as it stands, you're you're definitely right that it's cold. I, I, but I, you know, with everything from the setting, you know, to the way, you know, Altman just shoots his films. I don't, I, that seems to be the point, but intentional, totally intentional. Yeah. It just takes a minute to adjust. Yes. And it's about how these, uh, sort of like, uh, really, mom and pop small business owners can just get crushed by corporations and they're incredibly disposable and their stories will ultimately just get buried in the snow because the wheels of capitalism need to keep turning. Right. <laughs> well, it seems like he's been aware of that. That's what Westerns have been for ages now. And like, may, I don't know, maybe that does make sense that he's like saying, we're not really going to let you, I don't know, like, like, go on this story the same way that the characters are. We're going to have you watch these people that you have seen a billion times already. Just you're going to be in the town with them instead of coming into the town on a horse. Right. That's the difference. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's like, it's very aggressively anti-establishment yeah. and just, you know, very subversive in the filmmaking. Um, classic Altman, man. Yeah, absolutely. It's a classic film. Uh, I'm so glad I finally watched it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, I, I, I think I would, I second all of your uh, words about it and also the words of millions of smarter critics. Yeah, I know. Like, yeah, I, I've said my piece with it. It's not like the one that I'm the most enthusiastic about, like I said, but there's, you know, I, I like the conversation around movies like this that just choose to be this different and bold. Right. You know, because I mean, you pitch, the, how do you pitch an idea like this? We're going to do a movie that is a Western, except we're not on the road. We're just chilling in the town. Right. <laughs> and there's been like one movie that did that before and it's called Rio Bravo and it's brilliant, but no, 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 we're not going to, we're not going to focus that on one that. had John Wayne. Yeah. Though. It's got John Wayne and we're not going to focus on the sheriff. So who are we focusing on? You know, gamblers and prostitutes. What? <laughs> <laughs> it's great. <laughs> it's so good. Uh, there you go. We came in Mrs. Miller. That's from 1971. Uh, next up from 1982, the year of living dangerously directed by Peter Weir starring Mel Gibson, Sigourney Weaver and Linda Hunt. Yeah. It's Billy Kwan who won Best Supporting Actress that year at the Academy Awards. A young Australian reporter tries to navigate the political turmoil of Indonesia during the rule of President Sir Carno and the help of a diminutive photographer. Um, so I, I guess I knew that Linda Hunt won the Oscar for this. Um, I just 
didn't know it was her for the first hour of the movie before I went on IMDb. And I'm like, oh, wow. what? Wait a minute. Uh, here's Linda Hunt playing a, 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 a dwarf or, or I don't know. Would, would this person be considered a dwarf? Well, now, I mean, I, I don't know. No. Well, back then, maybe. I mean, Mel Gibson even says in the movie, you're not a dwarf. You're just a short person. Right. You know, there's a little bit of a difference. But as a really short half Chinese man, uh, I just didn't know that I was watching a woman. Never mind Linda Hunt, who I love from like all these TV shows, all these like procedural TV shows. Um, but I'm watching the thing. I'm like, man, who is this little guy? <laughs> I fucking love this little guy. Why isn't he in more movies? And then I'm like, wow. what the hell? Wow. I mean, it is, it's obviously a well-deserved award here. I, I mean, this performance just, totally overshadows the movie. I mean, I just think like it's a remarkable performance. I mean, we'll get into my, I, I mean, you know, full disclosure, I, I, I love the movie, but my experience with this movie is interesting. I mean, I started watching, I, go, I went through David Fincher's list of his 26 favorite films ever made. And this is, oh wow, this is on there. Okay. It's one of his favorite films of all time. So I was like, well, I got to watch it. I started watching it and you know, it, the movie is, so, <sighs> There, there are just movies out there that work for me because of the vibe and the setting. Yes. I, I, you know, like David Lynch has his weird fetish with Eraserhead and wanting to be in that shitty industrial complex. I want to be in an Indonesian uh, you know, like, government falling apart zone, whatever, with like sweaty huts. Just chilling with, with Sigourney at with, the embassy? With, chilling with like, <laughs> like people who don't belong in that country, smoking cigarettes, wearing tan pants and blue collared shirts. It's just... Ah, I love that jungly setting and I love how you step outside. There could be armed guards. I love that fucking setting. Yeah. It's like my favorite setting in movies. Yeah, it's, you do have a thing for Asian war zones. I do. I love these Asian war zone yeah. places. They're just great. I, just, I love those bungalows. Oh, I want to be in those bungalows so bad. Yeah. It's just, it's just great. It's full of like rich texture and person. Oh my God, this, this setting is just brimming with personality and they do a great job at exploring it. But to rope back around to what we were talking about, I saw the movie and Billy Kwan comes on the screen. I don't recognize the actress immediately and I'm just watching the movie and it's one of those like great moments where it's like I, I was very proud of myself for, for calling this because I just was like watching it and I'm like, yeah, yeah, that person won the Oscar. I don't know who it is, but yeah, that, that this right. performance is so good that there's there's just no way it doesn't win this Oscar. You could just kind of feel it. Well, also it is yeah. in, and I, I don't use this term as uh, as sort of uh, judgmentally as it's going to sound, but it's Oscar bait. I mean, this movie is, is Oscar bait through and through. Is it Oscar bait back then? See, I, I don't really know when the term started or yeah. like when our sort of perception of Oscar bait yeah. began. I kind of imagine though that like we always knew what an Oscar bait movie was. Maybe. Like movies like this we're doing well at the oscars 60 years before it came out right it's so, 1982 though i know that's still hard to judge it's i mean chariots of fire had just one best or maybe it won best picture that year maybe yeah i think it might have actually 1982 so uh, yeah is that, is that when they were making their shift i guess i got to imagine i mean now we definitely think of it as oscar bait but it, it is in a in a movie that you know it's a sort of period piece that is a war movie but not too like violent and hard-edged no. and you know it's a romance and it's kind of an epic and yeah i mean sure it's an oscar and also it's a woman playing a man's part but i didn't know she won the oscar i just i just knew it yeah i didn't look it up i just knew whoever this person is they won the oscar because this is like one of the most breathtaking performances i've seen in quite a long time yeah and boy was i shocked to find out that it was linda hunt right uh edna 
I know it's. I know it's not really. It's Edna, not, but it's but based it, on Edna. Right. 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 <laughs> I, I always Edna call Edna is based on her. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's it, it, yeah, man. Yeah. I, I I could understand why this wouldn't be totally your thing because the story is not the story is not like the most remarkable thing ever. It's just about a journalist investigating a, a politically precarious situation. And he's just sort of forced to deal with it. And there's a romance that stirs. It's almost entirely performance based for me. It's entirely vibe. It's entirely setting. I'm with you. It's just, and it's, it's the heart of Peter Weir, I suppose. I watch this movie and it just kind of makes me feel wonderful. And yeah, I I could under, like I said before, I, I, I rewatched it and I said, yeah, it's not totally going to be Nico's thing, but it's just, there's something just so oddly sweeping about it. And it kind of falls into that uncanny Valley effect that, um, the Magnificent Ambersands does. Yeah. It's like, I'm not necessarily sure this is like the greatest story in the world, but I'm just so in love with these people. I'm so in love with these performances. Everyone is just like brimming with charisma and every scene with them, even if it's not like leading to anything big or profound in the way that come and see will, uh, I just love spending time with them, you know, and, yeah. and, and wonderful people paired with like a, like just my favorite setting ever can go a long way for me. I don't know. It's just when, when I talk about movies in general, like a, a transport of experience is all a part of what I tend to look for. And, you know, looking for newer, interesting experiences is something I love in film. And I, yeah, I, I, I always feel pretty delighted after this movie. And again, it's another movie that to me really sticks its landing. Peter Weir's a tricky one. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. Uh, you know, I, uh, I like a lot of his movies. I, I don't know if I always like his movies because of him. <laughs> I think like dead poet society has a great performance and I <laughs> love it because I watched it as a kid, but I I don't know like that is a Disney movie through and through and it's kind of feels like a Disney hired hand made it. Uh, is it a Disney movie? Yeah, I'm I'm fairly certain. Uh, there's a kid that commits suicide in the movie and it's a horribly upsetting scene. Touchstones was owned by Touchstone Pictures was owned by Disney uh, at the time, right? That that is not I don't I wouldn't call that a Disney film. <laughs> I think I don't know. Maybe, not maybe I'm wrong spirit, about that. but uh, I mean Truman Show is really good. Probably his best movie. See, I don't like Truman Show anywhere near as close to this. Really? Truman Show might be number three on that list for me. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Master and Commander is good. I, I mean, yeah, he, he's a tricky one. I mean, he's a sentimental guy. I think yeah, like yeah. as far as Oscar bait historical period pieces go, like he makes really good ones. Uh, I really liked the journalism stuff of it just because that's what I'm really interested in. Like mm-hmm. I, I really loved Mel Gibson going to the palace at the beginning yeah, of the movie too, too. and struggling to find sources or get quotes and get interviews. <laughs> like I wanted more of that detail. Um, and I kind of just felt like the movie stopped short of the detail more times than not and sort of settled for the chemistry between Gibson and Sigourney, which is there. I mean, like they're it's both. Good. Yeah. I mean, I, I love both those actors. Um, and you know, this is both of them in their prime and it's cool seeing them together and all time spent with Linda hunt is, is time well spent. But yeah, I, I don't know. I kind of wanted more of just sort of like the geopolitical stuff and the detail of like being a journalist overseas and having to like fight for, interviews and having to claw for like quotes and like you know getting sort of mixed feedback on the broadcast that you're doing because you're doing important work that no one cares about yeah you know i mean that's just sort of like journalism movies for me like you look at spotlight or all the president's men like they are movies that turn into the detail that is a movie those both of those movies are about the journalism though like almost maybe to a fault in in some sense i love those movies but those movies are not as much about 
the, the the soulful nature of the people as much as they are about getting the story. Right. And this is much more about the people inside the story and kind of forcing them to forget about the story. Yeah. It's very antithetical to the idea that you need the story in the end, certainly. No, this is a romance. Yeah. This is a historical romance and there you know, were many of them made in the studio era and mm-hmm. and uh, like they're still made yeah. for Oscars these days, right? So um, I no, I totally get it. I get what the point is. Um, I just kind of found it a little uh, just didn't have enough tooth, right? Just didn't have enough bite to it. No. And, you know, for a movie called The Year of Living Dangerously, I didn't really feel a ton of danger throughout the whole thing. Well, it ratchets up. I remember like on rewatch, especially it's got this great like um, uh, what, what, this exponential curve where it's right. very flat for a while. And then you hit that that thread. and then everybody dies. it really right. jumps yeah, yeah, yeah. in a good way, though, like in a way that felt nice. And I had no long before let my guard down, which is what I, I always love it when a movie tricks me like that. Right. And it's part of what made that ending so, so satisfying. But I wanted more but, of Mel Gibson, like chasing the violence. I wanted the movie to be more about that. I wanted it to be sort of the insatiable sort of appetite of journalists and like the, the well, it is. It's just not as it doesn't like you said, it doesn't get into the detail of the violence specifically. It doesn't show those details as much it's as I'm sure about that but it's, want, it's more yeah. about his insatiable appetite for sigourney weaver at the end of it right well he like, betrays her though he does at the end of the day he's the, the point of it is that he's tested by the idea of like oh can you you know connect with people and actually just love people and fuck the story right and when he's finally presented with that conflict he doesn't really do it he, he fails miserably and someone dies essentially because of it yes uh, and yeah, the movie is more of like a, like an optimistic tale of someone finally letting go. And this is something that more so resonates with me. Like I've had this issue with documentarians in the past where they say, it doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter who's at stake. Keep filming. Right. And I've always been on the side of no, right. <laughs> Get the fuck out of there, man. I don't care. At the end of the day with all this going on, no one gives a shit. No one really cares. De- definitely. At the end of the yeah, just, yes, you are. Exactly. You're, you're, you're making a movie. It's like it's not important. Your humanity is more important than the story. And that's sort of the idea that this movie plays around with more, more, far more strongly towards the end. But a lot of the movie is, is uh, cooking that meal up to get you to understand, oh, wow, like he's really far gone. Right. And he's really forgotten. Like, like the, the, what, what would you call that? The integrity of why he was doing it in the first place. I do find people like this really interesting, though. I, I've actually yeah. I've, I've spent some time with journalists. Um, I've spent some time with people that have done reporting overseas. Um, and yeah, they're, it's a fascinating world. They're fascinating people and they've got so many stories. I'm not sure like the best stories are like I met Sigourney Weaver at an embassy and we fell in love. That's I, not, that's not, I know, that's Adam. I know. I know. It's just like I'm really interested in this world. I love characters mm-hmm. like this and I love the job. I just think like the job is endlessly fascinating. Um, the world is fascinating though. I think what yeah. the movie makes up for though is particularly with Billy Kwan's character is how it chooses to explore the 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 smaller elements. And it doesn't get like too ambitious or too broad. And one of the things I love about it is that it really relegates to just Billy Kwan's relationship to that woman and her son. And just through that relationship, we kind of understand the bigger picture and that's it. Yeah. And it feels so much more grounded than that, than just sprawling, establishing shots across the city like it's fucking Slumdog Millionaire. Look at all these slums, man. Sure. Look at how packed in they are. Yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah. no, 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 no. We get it just through a human connection here. And that's perfectly fine by me. Right. I, I don't know. I, my, my biggest retort for what you're saying is just like, you know, it's not that moving that you're talking about. I think it's very clearly not. And there are I other movies that you have like that, that if you want to, you know, you know, cure that appetite. 
Right. So see full metal jacket. You know, like if you, <laughs> see full metal if you, jacket. Like if you want to, you know, I would argue no. Don't see. Full, <laughs> I like this more than full metal jacket. That's no. I, apparently, you love it. I'm happy for you. Yeah. I'm glad that you like it. And I, I did like it. I, I don't want to. You know, these are all really good movies. I yeah, did, yeah, like yeah, we yeah. nominated six, like just <laughs> fucking bangers, right? Yeah. So this, this is a good movie, certainly. Um, I guess I just went into it expecting something a little different, and that's on me. That's not on the movie. Shame on you, Nico. I'm up. No, I'm just kidding. Shame on you. <laughs> it happens. Good one. Good. Glad I saw it. Me too. All right. <laughs> when did I see it? I think it was like junior year of college. Yeah, that was a while ago. Really love it. All right. Here we go. 1985's Come and See. You're welcome, Jabril. <laughs> Directed by Elam Kilmov. Yep. Starring Alexei Kravchenko and Olga Maranova. After finding an old rifle, a young boy joins the Soviet resistance movement against ruthless German forces and experiences the horrors of World War II. Mm. Fun movie. Yeah, it's a delightful little theme park ride, isn't it? What a romp. Yeah, it makes you feel so delightful inside. What a charming romp. They should screen this at Disney. <laughs> you should make a ride out, out of it. <laughs> Christ. Oh, boy. Come and see. Uh, yeah, go ahead. You have the floor. Oh, God. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I prepared you for this one. I was, you were trying to figure out like when we were going to do this podcast and it was delayed a little bit. And one of the things I told you was Nico, don't end with this movie. Right. And I heeded your advice. <laughs> it's, it's not, you're not going to feel so great. You, you, you could use an upper after this one. I said this when I watched it, when I was still writing reviews, I said, it's, it's not a horror movie guys. It's not, it ain't a fucking horror movie. I mean, Jesus, not a war movie. Oh, I'm getting very mixed up here. (sighs) See, this is what the film does to me. It's a horror movie. It is a horror movie, not a war movie. It is a horror film. Got it. Through and through. It is Roger Ebert. I couldn't have said it better. It's just, you know, there are war movies out there. I mean, he says the idea that war movies are never fully anti-war because- they're, invariably, they tend to have a lot of spectacle and action, and there's a, there's an excitement to the chaos. Well, they they also and, tend to. I read his review as well. They tend to end with victory. Yeah. So you are left with some characters that have survived and conquered war, and I I, I think a, the, a common criticism is that war cannot be conquered. Mm-hmm. Right. There is no winners or losers in war. So. You know, unless you make a movie about everybody dying and like you're just, you know, left with uh, no characters at the end of it, you haven't really made an anti-war film. I, I don't agree with that criticism, but that's what he essentially said in his. Review. Yeah, yeah. But, and and I, I agree, too. Yeah, that's that's I, I, I fall on that side. It's definitely a little bit harsh. But if you've ever wanted a war film that made you feel bad for wanting a war film, uh, yeah. like look no further than this. I mean, you know, I thought I had that with the deer hunter and it's not even close. Oh, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Deer hunter. Um, I could be the best war movie I've ever seen. Uh, frankly, could be like the best movie I've ever seen. It's just <laughs> like the f- most flooring soul crushing thing I've witnessed. Such an interesting perspective with where they're the with where the camera is going. I mean, you want to study perspective in a movie. You want to look at point of view and like where to position an audience to make them feel just totally at fault. My reading of this film is almost like 
you are putting the characters through the hell just by turning the movie on. And it's entirely your fault by watching this movie. Yeah. And, and it's further influenced by just that, God, that final shot. <laughs> the final shot where it feels like you have realized, okay, yes, this is our fault. We've done this to you. We're, we're, we're the bad guys here, but we're sorry. And the camera's like literally chasing after the characters to the point where it's like, okay, we're going to cut through the woods now to see if we can catch up to them, but we can't. And they just, they don't even look back at you. And then you're just left there all on your own. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's, <sighs> God, it's a hard film to talk about. It's, it's just like, you know, there are just certain experiences that you can't fully describe. I can't put into all, all the words. It's just, you walk out of it. I, I walked, I walk out of a movie like this and I look in the mirror and I don't see the same person. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's okay. It's stunning. It's a, it's a, it's a miraculous film. That's a take. Yeah. Um, so th- this movie, we're sort of talking about how the camera moves in the case of McCabe and Mrs. Miller. I, I have a sort of similar thought on, on this movie. Um, it is, as you said, like a, an apocalyptic horror movie yeah. with a, a very, um, uh, uh a camera that moves a camera. There, there's a lot of steady cam. There's a lot of dolly shots. Mm. Like it, it's sweeping in its scope. I, I com, uh, sort of compared it to Ch- children of men a little bit, in a little bit, yeah. just it's it's scope and how it shows you the horrors of the world around what these characters are going through, which is horrifying enough, right? Like yep. it's, it's never satisfied just putting the camera on a tripod or whatever. Um, yet, this movie accomplishes something that children of men and frankly, no other movie of its kind I've ever seen have accomplished, which is it manages to be intimate in those moments. Um, You have shots of characters just in a medium looking directly into the camera. It's sort of like this recurring motif, but you are sort of always off kilter because the camera is so fluid, Mm -hmm. but then it fixes on this little boy's face and you can't, you can't look at him. You have to look away. Like, I don't think I've ever seen something so sweeping and so sort of showy in its style while being so ridiculously intimate. Like Mm -hmm. it almost feels like the whole movie's in close up, even though you're seeing so much of it. Like it's such a widescreen movie, but there's something about the aspect ratio and like how the characters are sort of framed in it. Like it was really like a, a bizarre viewing experience. It's surreal, man. It really is surreal. No. It's unlike any movie I've ever seen no, before. Th- that, that's honestly the, the the bigger one of the bigger takeaways for me. It's like like it's not even close to like like I, I you know we talked David Lynch's surreal there, but and you know those movies are literally surreal. But the feeling you get from the surrealism, I don't think it's even close to this, man. Mm-hmm. There is just this weird otherworldly feeling when you lock down the camera and you just focus on the, these characters, and it's so uncomfortable. It's like the, the thing about the movie when I first saw it too was that it's just a humiliating movie. Yeah. There's something about like just having to deal with the fact that you're with this character now and like those lockdown medium shots. Like you said you can't look uh you have to look away, but I like the movie is forcing you to to deal with this person. Right. Whether you want to I think or that's not. what it is. I think it's, that's the difference between Altman and this is that Altman sort of gives you room to hide or and, and like and, and let yeah. gives shows you other stuff to look at. And there's nothing you can do. You can't escape. Yeah, there there really is nothing you can do to escape this movie uh, other than turn it off. Well, this is the interesting thing too is that like that fluidity makes you feel that it's so free, but you feel like what is happening was always meant to happen. Yeah. There's just such a specificity to everything that goes on even when the camera's not like locked down or on a dolly. There's not that much of that. 
in this movie, in all honesty. It's some of the best steady cam work I've ever seen in a film. Right. For exactly those reasons. But it's not always, pr- you know, pretty either. Like, like these fluid shots are nice and everything. But like, to go back to what I was saying about the, the camera just victimizing the people in front of us like that shot where they're just going through the mud Mm. there's just nothing pretty about that shot it's 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 more documentarian than anything it's not there's not like a lot of great composition it's just flat children trying to go through a a swamp and nearly drowning in in muck right and 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 i get you know that that's no cuts by the way no cuts you 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 just have to live with it and it's kind of the whole movie in a lot of ways. Yeah. Which makes like the scenes where it chooses to be serene. So like, this is the other thing. Like when it chooses to be serene, it freaks me out. It's, it is like, well, the freaks you out. The scene where the two soldiers come to get our main character at the beginning. And the guy's like doing the trick with his hat and like pretending to drink the milk. And he's trying to make the kids laugh. And then you cut to the kids and they're sobbing. Uh, yeah, there, there is a, it's weird because there is there are like tonal shifts like that. The yeah. movie does attempt to be lighthearted at times because it is true to life. There are people that turn to humor in times of war, mm-hmm. um, but it's not like you know life is beautiful shit. You know, like no. this it, it is. It's it is very disturbing. You're, you're, that's actually a good way of putting it. Like it's like oh this doesn't belong, and the fact that it doesn't belong, it doesn't bring me any relief. It just makes me more uncomfortable. Well, t- yeah. Yeah, no, because like you said, it, like, it shouldn't exist. You put your guard down immediately and you're wondering like like <laughs> with everything we just saw before with, when it was literally apocalyptic, why are we having this dreamlike sequence where kids are bathing in the rain as the, as you know these wonderful, beautiful shots of the trees and like the sound drowns out. You feel like you're in heaven and then they start exploding. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's it's just devastating, man. It's like you can't be devastating if it's all devastation too. That's the other thing. Yeah, you sort of need that contrast. You need that relationship with him and his family, that optimism that he sees at the beginning of the movie. You need a semblance of what this world could be like if it was really beautiful. And then when they finally decide to destroy it, <laughs> you know, you're you're yeah, you're there with it, I suppose. Right, and they also reveal this information to you in um, fairly unconventional ways. I mean, I, of course, think of the shot of um, the boy running towards the island with the girl, and the girl turns around, and she sees just the dead bodies piling up, and that was all foreshadowed because you heard the flies in that home. It's so haunting. You um, barely see it. You see for like half a You second. barely see it, and it's just sort of like this this cast off moment. Like it's not really the focal point. I mean, the character is literally running in the opposite direction and doesn't look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't want to look at it. He knows it's there though. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah. And there's, there's just so much of that, uh, you know, showing devastation without always showing directly the devastation. I'll, I'll sort of give you a, a strange comparison to tell me if this makes sense, but I recently watched assault on precinct 13 for the first time. And in the shootout, sequence in that the initial shootout sequence in that movie john carpenter shows the characters getting shot at and shows some of the characters returning fire but for the most part he shows an empty police station with like papers flying up and the sound of bullets ricocheting off the desk and you know he'll just show you the damage that's done to this building and sort of like uses that as a stand-in for the human body Mm. um and you know 
you kind of get a better sense of destruction by doing it that way, as opposed to just watching a squib go off in somebody's chest. Like there's something almost more visual and violent and gory about (laughs) inflicting it on an in inflicting the damage on inanimate in inanimate Inanimate. objects. Can't talk today. (laughs) Sorry. I I blame Norm Macdonald (laughs) messing with my head from beyond the grave. Uh, so, but anyway, this movie sort of plays those tricks, particularly at the end, which is one of the most disturbing things I've ever seen in a movie, just bar none, period, end of story. Uh, but watching just a building get burnt down and cherry bombed or whatever. Or I had the same Molotov thought. cocktails. It's I, like you've accomplished so much more by inflicting the damage on the building than inflicting yes. it on the people. Because you know, it's another instance where what's left up to the imagination is so much scarier. I mean, not much is really left up to the imagination, but not seeing the, the squibs, like you said helps a lot, but it's just, it, it helps for like the anxiety of the situation too. You know, I, I maybe it's just because Elm Klimov has a better understanding of film, but like when you shoot someone and they're dead, that's kind of it. Mm. I don't know. I, I am, I am thinking more about like the wounded people inside that, that barn and then all the people who are eventually burning alive. And I don't really need to see that. I get the idea and, and I don't know. Yeah. Can we talk about Elm? The the, the, what? Say what was it? Can we talk about Elm for a second? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like what happened to that guy? Can you explain what happened? He stopped making movies after this. This was it. This last last. I think he's. I think he passed away. But yeah, he was like a prolific like Soviet era. Passed away in two thousand three. Wow. So well after this movie. Yeah. Yeah, a very prolific Soviet era filmmaker and yeah, very well known. Yeah. And this was it. He basically said like I don't have anything else to say. That this was it. Mm. You know, and you'd see the movie and it, yeah, he's, he's, he's probably right. <laughs> I don't understand how you top something like this. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. But, um, man, <laughs> I mean, I guess we, it would, it would be a crime for us not to talk about Alexei Kravchenko, who is the lead kid in this. Apparently they put this kid through the ringer on set of this movie. <sighs> okay. So you've seen the movie. There is a scene where they're in a field and he's with a cow. Right. And the cow gets shot because, you know, there are machine guns at the edge of a of a forest that are mm-hmm. sort of scanning the field for any enemies that are going to be walking across it. So you just gun them down. Um, and the Germans start firing at the kid and they see the cow as well. The cow goes down and he ducks. They killed that cow in the movie. So that's a problem. Yeah. They were also actually shooting at the kid. Oh, goodness. So those those flares they seem like flares no 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 those are tracer rounds that are actually bullets that are they're shooting over the kid's head (laughs) the quote that i saw was that (laughs) there were bullets firing 10 centimeters over his head yep yeah that's probably true right apparently the director also wanted to bring a hypnotist in on the movie to like help him simulate the trauma and terror to a greater effect which, first of all, unnecessary. Yeah. Uh, but also, yeah. The they Alex- do things differently in Russia. <laughs> Alexei was apparently not susceptible to hypnotism, so that didn't work uh, when they tried it. Yeah. Uh, like, it's just, it's an unbelievable performance. I don't think they had to do this to him in order to get that unbelievable no. performance. <laughs> no, 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 no. But it is one of the most completely realized performances by a child actor I think I'm ever going to see. Yeah. It could be the best child performance act. I mean, if, if you were to take that title away from this kid, how dare you with right. everything that he was put through? <laughs> yeah, it, it is. Um, yeah, it's crushing. And with how he turns on us, this is the other thing I keep saying, how he how like delightful he is at the beginning of the movie versus the way he is at the end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Pointing the gun at the 
at the picture. A baby Hitler. A baby Hitler. It's an interesting idea. Uh, that's my one. If I had to criticize the movie in just one way, because other than that, I think it's perfect and it's unlike anything I've seen before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally. Uh, do we have to end the movie with the a baby Hitler question? Like that just seemed like kind of a weak sauce sort of philosophical question to put at the end of like, what's a pretty like realistic and like grotesquely violent movie. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I don't know, like to just like to, to sort of analyze Hitler's childhood and like where everything went wrong. It just didn't seem like what that was, that, that, that was what the movie was about in any way, you know? Um, it could be. It's it could be part of the DNA, I suppose. I guess it is. I mean, it is because that's how the movie ends, and that's the question that you're left with. But um, yeah, that one just sort of felt weak sauce. Maybe just because <laughs> we've spent thirty years asking this stupid question, like if you could travel back in time, would you kill baby Hitler? Oh, I see. You know, it just sort of it's now thought of as this stupid like puff puff pass dorm room question. It's for me. It's both this strangely like it's horribly bleak, but bleak, but uplifting to see him not take the shot at baby Hitler at the end. You mm. know, it's a hard he's, thing. He's held on to his humanity. In other words, well, he hasn't, but right. You know, it's, it's a strange kind of moral quandary, but he's also being very honest with himself in a lot of ways. Mm. You know, it's also just a reflection of him too. It's the same, you know, it's basically saying at the end of the day, like he's not really much different than that little baby Hitler. Yeah, but he is very much different than that baby Hitler, right? Like something in no, that guy. I mean, what we've just watched is evil that you didn't yes, know human I, beings were capable of, right? I, I know. And I'm not saying necessarily saying like he is literally Hitler. I get it. But, y- you know, you're 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 birthed from the same planet in, in that way where it's like you come into war and you're just, you're mutated into something much more gross and disgusting. Yes. This isn't though heat. It, like there's a fine no. line between cop I'm not and saying- criminal. <laughs> there's a fine line between Holocaust victim and Holocaust leader. I didn't say that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But that's sort of how it read to me. It just kind of felt like this kind of, empty philosophical question. Whereas what we had just watched is total fucking realism. And like it, it is in your face. There's not like a lot of poetry yeah. in, in what's going on. And that's oh, sort of felt, whoa, whoa, well, whoa, 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 poetry whoa. Visually, visually, but not in, yeah. in, not in like what's on the page. You know what I'm saying? Like not in yeah. the content that we're shown. And then we, we sort of end with this like sort of poetic philosophical existential quandary. And that, I, I don't know, that just felt kind of a little, <laughs> it, it didn't, it didn't feel real to me. It just, it sort of felt Why like, uh. it felt like an authentic, like this is like a Hollywood question that we're posing at the end. Oh God. You yeah. know? I, it's, a, it's a minor quibble, minor, minor quibble, but that's just my, I don't know. Were you that bothered by it? I was. I was kind of bothered by it. It's like, really? We're doing this? Eh. Baby Hitler? <laughs> I don't know. My thought. I don't know. I don't know. It's the point of the movie, though, isn't it? I don't think so. I don't, sure I don't it think is. it is the point of the movie. Really? I don't. No. I don't think it's the point oh, of the I movie. I completely disagree. I think it's you. a movie about survival and about... Yeah. You know, and about terror and about evil. Well, I, it's also about the human condition in a moment like that, though, isn't it? Yeah, does, it, it, does it, art, does, it, it's not really a movie about like one thing specifically. It is a very... It is a document. It's a historical document. Kind of. It's not based on a true story yeah, specifically. It is. Well, it's ba- it is loosely based on this novel. Uh, the novel was called I Am the Fiery Village, and it's mm. by this guy, Alex Adam Adamovich. Um, and I guess he sort of cobbled together stories that he had heard and also things that he had experienced. Yeah, so it's not like... It, it's the same way that like Saving Private Ryan is a sure. true story, sure. you know, which, you know, yeah, it, I don't know. 
I don't know. It's a it 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 feels in line with a lot of the moral quandaries of the rest of the movie. Certainly in the poetic fashion, visually of the rest of the movie for sure, mm. and sort of like breaking down the violent machinations of what makes war war and what makes a person in war do what they do. Right, which is kind of the the greater like human question. I guess I like listen, if that if that question or a question like it comes at the end of Apocalypse Now, which it does, by the way. Mm. Um, it's fine. I mean, that is a movie that's sort of about the ruminations of war and about like the sort of ethereal, you know, sort of feeling of war. And it's about, and so, you know, I kind of feel exactly the same way about this. You know, we're Martin, but Martin Sheen in that movie is literally talking you through some of these like moral quandaries and it's very existential and it kind of feels, it is a fictional story, but it almost feels like the war itself is fictionalized. Mm. It kind of feels like this is not something that actually happened. It's just, it feels like hell. It's a nightmare. Yeah. It's literally a descent into hell. Whereas this is a descent into hell, but it, it does sort of feel like, Oh, this is, these are stories that actually happen. Yeah, no, I agree. It's not pulling any punches. I guess you could say in the same in the way that Apocalypse Now is. Yeah, and I think the movie is is better for it, by the way. I do <laughs> yeah. think like it's good that you don't have Martin Sheen just like spitting this nonsense at you. I think they're doing, you know, in essence the same thing, but from a very different approach and with varying effects as well. From or not even varying, but just different effect. <laughs> One to me is, you know, n- no slate against Apocalypse Now. I love it, but it's it doesn't quite reach the emotional turmoil that this one goes through but i think it doesn't uh, it doesn't do that because it's grounded it's more grounded than apocalypse yeah i agree you know and so i think that maybe that's what i'm really trying to say is that final question all of a sudden we've taken it out of this grounded context and we've put it in the context of history and and um philosophy and i guess the whole movie does feel philosophical to me, though. Uh, okay, maybe you know, we can agree to disagree on that. You know, I mean, it's just it's it's the feeling of the movie more than anything. Like I said, it's it's to me it's just as surreal as Apocalypse Now through the way it feels. Maybe not necessarily visually, but the way it the way it takes you through the story certainly, mm. and the level of discomfort and the level of just like I have been hit with some very nasty drug you're right. you know, it's entirely this movie yeah and you're questioning everything throughout it like i'm kind of the, the the entire time i'm asking what's the point of half of what's going on but in a good way you know so i'm never like not invested in just the the center questions that you know klimov is posing mm-hmm. so it's not like that that ending you know felt out of place it's not like i wasn't asking a bunch of questions beforehand and the ending too is deeply troubling it's it's weird because i i my experience was funny because i was uplifted to see him find like people to be safe with but then you know you're reminded that he's you know just going off to fight again Mm. so it's this really unfortunate balance where it's like he's now in technically the best position he could be in but he's still at war yeah (laughs) you know uh i think it's great yeah, it's really, really good. I, uh, I think the title of this movie was originally going to be "Kill Baby Hitler." Kill Hitler was or the kill name Hitler. Of it. Yeah, kill Hitler was the name, yeah. but it did. The title, by the way, is uh, quoting the Book of Revelation, mm-hmm. chapter six, uh, in regards to the four horsemen of the apocalypse. There's that apocalypse theme. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And uh, and when we had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, "Come and see." <laughs> and I looked, and behold, a pale horse and his Name that sat on him was death, mm-hmm. and hell followed with him. Yeah, mm. there you go. Yep, accurate. Come yeah. and see. To love, to bear children. Ugh. That is such. Come and see the way he turns that around on her. Oh my god. Yeah, it's uh, like it's like really, really. <laughs> it's oh my god. Oh boy. Let's move on. Yeah. 
We're having a tough day. Uh, talk radio. Talk radio is next. 1988's Talk Radio, directed by Oliver Stone, starring Eric Bogosian, Ellen Green, and Alec Baldwin. A rude, contemptuous talk show host becomes overwhelmed by the hatred that surrounds his program just before it goes national. Um, Backstory here. Freshman year of college, I'm going to school at Emerson College in Boston. I am taking in my first semester this class called radio production it's um uh, the professor is this guy named jack jack is like this old like at least in his 60s maybe even older now um this like old school dj that used to like operate radio stations in baltimore he operated the emerson radio station local college radio station like has that like really deep bellowy like morning zoo dj voice Mm. um and it is a class that is instantly dated. I mean, when I took it, it was dated. Yeah. Like when I took it, like everyone in the class knew that what we're learning here is totally useless. Like we learned about the idea of top 40 radio, which doesn't exist anymore. We learned about the idea of talk radio, which just doesn't exist anymore. We learned about the different formats. We learned about, you know, why radio stations are labeled a certain way and, you know, um, you know, how uh, ratings books are done and like, uh, you know, Armatron ratings books or whatever. Um, and, you know, all of this stuff is great because I, I'm kind of obsessed with talk radio. It's, well, I'm, that's no secret. Look what I'm doing now. I'm obsessed with talk radio. I've always been obsessed with talk radio. Um, and I, I loved this class. It's probably my favorite course I've ever taken in college. Um, and so what, what year was this? 2013. So this was a while ago that I that I saw this movie. But for oh. some fucking reason, Jack just uh, is like, hey, today we're watching talk radio. Oh, I'm not sure what his lesson was i'm not sure what the point of it was like i don't know how that fit into the curriculum i just think it was a, a movie about radio that he enjoyed and so he showed it for <laughs> us um but much like the movie uh the, the, this class was useless and um and like now you watch it it's so dated like it's all of the references to like talk radio callers do do kids even know what talk radio callers are do people know the difference between am and fm radio like do people realize that before podcasts like there were these guys like opie and anthony and howard stern that were shock jocks or don imus that were that would go on on air and just like say offensive things under fcc guidelines right so they couldn't swear but they could have like naked women in the studio and they go like do people know this do people know like the sort of tragic nature of these figures and how they're sort of egomaniacs. And do, do people realize that like mentally ill people would just call these shows in the middle of the night and they would wait on the line for an hour and they would just blow nonsense into these people's ears. Like it, it it's like, so me, this movie, it's ridiculously me. Ooh. Um, but, uh, like I understand now you watch it. It's like, what does this have to say about our current moment? I'm not sure it has anything to say about our current moment. Maybe you could make like a sort of thinly veiled comparison to social media and our sort of like the ego, uh, maniacism of that. But, um, you could, yeah, it, it's, it's one of those movies that I, again, saw, Freshman year of college, it's a very formative sort of film going time for me. I was going to the movies at least twice a year or twice a week. Rather, it was, you know, my my dorm was a block away from a movie theater. So I just went all the time. I was watching a lot of movies. I was talking about movies a lot. You know, I'm living in a dorm with 
three other film majors, three aspiring filmmakers and me. Um, and so we're talking about movies constantly. We're, we're seeing movies, we're watching them. Uh, and I'm watching them in class too. And, and so like it, it definitely did sort of help hone my film taste, th- this sort of like claustrophobic play like atmosphere, the, the way that Oliver Stone shoots this thing. It, it's, it's a horror movie, right? It's, or it's at least like a really like high wire thriller. Like yeah. th- there's a lot of shots of like windows and, and Eric Bogosian is just in the middle of the studio and he just feels exposed because of, you know, all the buildings surrounding this, this radio station. Um, and you know, helped uh, sort of feed my love of dialogue. Uh. Eric Bogosian, I he's obviously uh, now known for Uncut Gems and Succession and stuff like that, but is sort of like this classic New York theater actor. And this is based on one of his plays. He wrote this play, did an off Broadway run, got adapted into a movie, and he of course played himself and spoke his own words. Um, but I just kind of think like it's a really good pairing between him and Oliver Stone. I think Oliver Stone like gets the most out of this very limiting environment, this claustrophobic environment. It, like yeah. Stone is forced to sort of play it straight in a lot of instances. And I, I just think that is usually a formula for success. <laughs> uh, so it's kind of just like a, a very Nico movie. And um, it's it's honestly, it's one of my favorites. I, I, I just oh. I adore it. And it was just sort of a very formative film for me. Um, okay. OK, cool. But I understand why somebody wouldn't necessarily get it, you know. Oh, I'm not sure I didn't get it. You know, it's it's you know another like like you love theater, I think more than you let on, you know. Uh, but what I will say is that like for what is clearly an adaptation of a play, he Oliver Stone's creativity never really wanes, mm-hmm. and I love what he does with you know like the the placement of a camera in a, in a lot of scenes and how it's he constructs a very good, very like fractured world through this character. How so many shots are just kind of viewed through a window, like looking into the studio through like the colored glass of like the logo, and it never feels like our lead character is fully like put together. And even in like the scenes that are like flashbacks, the color is off and it's hazy and the camera's moving around like crazy. There's just this really great idea that this person is, you know, you know, like like still trying to put things together in his head. And yeah, I I I love the idea that this character is just trying to find some semblance of control or identity and he never ever ever does it. Mm-hmm. Um and is constantly suffering for it. And you feel his weird headspace just through Oliver Stone's like immaculate direction, particularly with the spinning room scene. Yeah. It's incredible yeah, classic stuff. stuff. Just like such a great idea. Yeah. Um, it's, but it's, it's, it, it is about a character that I really don't like. Sure. You know, it's a, it's a person who, you know, tries to say so much that he doesn't say anything. Yes. And you know, I, I'm frustrated by people like that. You're one of them. Yeah. No, I'm I'm just, you're not, you're not this bad, but (laughs) no, but I do relate to this idea that you just get in front of a microphone and just make it up as you go. Yeah. And you know, like that is something that I find very fascinating. And I'm, I, but it's just like, you're just so stuck. It's like, like you really got to listen to those people who are just like, you're full of shit. Yes. Stop it. Right. Stop it. Right. And the guy's like, no, I can't help it. It's part of this weird addiction. Yes. <laughs> this is the art, man. This is the performance art. And yeah. Yeah, it, it is the most indulgent form of performance art. What you and I do. And it's very unhealthy. Yes. It's tremendously. Unhealthy. I can relate. It doesn't, it, doesn't, it, it, 
if you're willing to take that ride for one little movie, it's good. And that's the thing. It's a tremendously entertaining film front to back. Yeah. And yeah, I, I would, I really don't want to watch it again. See, I could not wait to watch <laughs> I it again. Really like, don't so watch it again. I really don't want to watch it It's just so fucking electric. Like, dialogue. I would rather watch literally any other movie on this list, including Come and See. Yeah. Uh, just as like a, like a soulful, like artistically pleasing experience. Yeah. This isn't quite there. Um, but yeah, it it's it's just nonstop, man. Nonstop. You know, it just doesn't let 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 up, and you're constantly trying to tell these characters to just get their shit together, shake them loose, whatever. Just get them on track, and they are their own worst enemy all the time. There's nothing you can do about it. To the point, like, even when they they have the bright idea to like bring the people into the studio, like people like this, is this really what you're getting your kicks off of? Talking to fucking losers like that? Why? And it's just something that I will never understand really. But it was something that happened. I mean, th- yeah, th- this is all, this is stern, man. This yeah, is like peak Opie and Anthony. This is, you know, telling people to have sex at St. Patrick's cathedral and record it on, on, uh, on, uh, over the phone. Like that is the reason that Opie and Anthony got kicked off a of terrestrial radio. Like yeah. they forced people to do these ridiculous stunts. And yeah, I think at the time there were definitely people that got it. And most people were like, this is trash. This is like not this. This is not becoming of a polite society. Yeah. It's the oral equivalent of uh, like like a Jerry Springer show. Yes. You know, and I hate Jerry Springer. So there's that. Uh-huh. Uh, what do you think about Jerry Springer? I mean, I find the show entertaining. Of oh, course I do. I mean, I don't like why <laughs> I'm not a Jerry Springer viewer. And I think like yeah, he's definitely done. Uh, Jerry Springer is a little different, I think, than Howard Stern. I yeah, think I Howard Stern has done. Uh, mostly positive for the culture, whereas Jerry Springer has done mostly negative. Yeah, and that that I would agree with, sure. But this guy in this movie is, is closer to Jerry Springer than he is Howard Stern. He's an ex- he's an me. exaggerated, per, you know, a, a, a sort of exaggerated caricature of Howard Stern. Yeah, 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 yeah. I thought the same thing. So, but I mean, he's very O and A. He he's very much a guy that you would hear on local radio yeah. in the eighties. Yeah. 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 Um, I don't think it's that far off. Um, no, I didn't get this. It's authentic. I'll give the movie that. Listen, too. It's, it, like- it's based on a real guy. Uh, this, this guy, Alan Berg, Denver talk show host was gunned down by white supremacists in response to one of his shows. And that's where Eric Bogosian got this idea. Ah. So this is the thing that actually happened. Crazy. Um, Crazy. Roger Ebert actually talks about it in his review. He met Alan Berg on a number of occasions. Roger ah. Ebert was on his radio show and he's like, yeah, this is actually, it's not quite as unhinged as Allen Berg was. Allen Berg seemed like he had his shit together more, but had issues with addiction, had issues with his marriage. Like he was putting a lot of himself on the radio. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and where do you draw that line? I think that is one of the questions you could sort of ask yourself is like, you know, what, what parts of your life are mineable for content? <laughs> you know, what, like where can I really get in a shouting match with my wife on the air? Is that, in the bounds of the game. It's not a head scratcher though. Like to me, the answers are quite obvious. Yeah. And that's sure. What, fair. Like, enough. like, fair like enough. the difference between something like this and like come and see where it's like the questions <laughs> the movie asks or the challenges it poses. Like I will never stop thinking about them. And right, a right, little right. more universal and human. Um, this is just like, no dude, just, just stop, just stop. And I understand like the interesting part of the movie is that he can't quite do that. Yeah. But yeah, to me, it's like, <laughs> I don't want to sound pretentious here, but when I feel like I am in the right place and I'm just like, I'm I'm yelling at this character to get everything together. You're morally righteous throughout the whole thing. You think that's a sort of failure? 
Well, I think most people are morally righteous next to this character in a lot of ways. Yeah. He's not the worst human. I, I'm probably going to believe he's the devil. He's not quite that No, bad, we're supposed to pity him, though. Right. I was didn't care that he died. Okay. Didn't give a shit that he died. Yeah, and well, it's, uh, yeah, you know. I wasn't rooting for him. Definitely not. I, no. I, I definitely did feel bad for him. I found him to be sort of tragic and, you know, like, and I also, I think, as you said, found him to sort of be like a, a, a canker sore. Yeah. On humanity, right? <laughs> the thing is, is like, like, it's not, it's, it's not a, a drug addiction where like there's suffering and there's, there's, you need to do a little bit more to get them away from it. They are just their own egomaniacal self. And sure. for some reason, like that, I, that is not as hard of a habit to kick. If I'm just being completely honest, it's really not as bad to kick as fucking cocaine. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> I don't know. I find myself to be a pretty tempting drug. <laughs> you wish. Irresistible. <laughs> yeah. Having done my fair share of experimentation, trust me, Nico, <laughs> not even close. Am I nothing compared to acid? Is that oh, what you're telling you, me? You haven't lived, my friend. Oh. <laughs> 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 I've been sober for years. Don't don't come at me now. Except for booze. I still drink booze. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm sober except for the one thing. Except that for it, the booze. Yes. <laughs> I've talked about dr- whatever. Got it. Um y- yeah, it, I, and I think the other thing is that when the movie starts you off like hating this person, at least I start off the movie really hating this person, as entertained by him as a, as it is. You know, I'm not like buying into a lot of his hardships. And I understand like that's kind of the point, but it's the type of feeling you get like, you know, to relate back to drug dealers when you have a friend in your life that no matter what you do, no matter what you say, just keeps getting worse and you just kind of give up and you, you sort of resent them for the fact that they haven't tried at all. And you're like, fuck you, man, mm-hmm. go, go do what you want to do. Yep. And that's kind of where I am by the end of the film with him so that when he dies, it's like, all right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's like the point. It's a good movie. It's I'd say it's a very good movie, honestly. Just through its the the, the sheer intensity of its storytelling and Bogosian too. By yeah, the way. is fantastic. He's fucking great. So good in this movie. He's great. You know, I'm just explaining like why I wouldn't jump at the bit to watch this immediately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Um, and uh, as I said, it is very of a time, of a place, of an era. I wouldn't find it like terribly dated in okay. that way, though. All right. I, I was able to relate to like more human ideas. Yeah than just like, ooh, talk radio. Right. But it is definitely something that I care about, and I've thought a lot about these sort of characters. You know, I spent a lot of time listening to Mike Francesa yeah. and, <laughs> you know, other sort of, I wouldn't even say controversial, but sort of like uh, larger-than-life personalities that attract a certain caller. And I, and although I found also these, in, these examples to be exaggerated, and although I don't think any of, you know, like, you know, Bill from White Plains would necessarily go and, gun down Mike Francesa in a parking lot. There is a sort of, there's a very special kind of um, desperate person that feels the need to call these shows and wait on the line for an hour just to give their opinion on something. Um, You know, it's kind of sad. I mean, these figures can be very sort of sad and lonely um, and desperate for attention. And I, and um, you know, yeah, I I found that interesting. The interrogation of that idea too. No, I agree it's just to me like you know again like when i the the ideas come back to like yes you're you're wrong you've been dead the whole time you know that's how i view people that are this intense it's like so desperate for the their voice their attention that they kind of throw everything out in order to make that happen Mm -hmm. and you're not really a person at that point as far as i'm concerned you're something you know 
You're a zombie, right? Horribly misshapen. Yeah. You don't know what you are. And that's very clear with something like this. Yeah. The fact that you're going out and speaking your mind this way, it, to me, is proof that you don't really know who you are. And yeah, <laughs> I, ha- I hate sounding this way. Like, I hate sounding like above a character in a movie always. But like, it's like, dude, what are you doing? Yeah. But I get the, you know, I, I can't be too critical. I, that's somewhat the point. So, uh, okay. Glad we talked about that one. Yeah. It's uh, it's one of my faves. It's great. Yeah, it's really good. Really, really good. Okay. I'm glad I saw it. All right. Uh, 2002's City of God is next, directed by Fernando Marielius. Marielius? Marielius? Starring, a lot of foreign names I get to pronounce here. Starring <laughs> Alexander <laughs> Rodriguez, Leonardo Firmino, and Alice Braga. Damn foreigners. <laughs> Dickener germs. Dickener <laughs> <laughs> this is a, uh, a Portuguese movie. Yes. Uh, it's in the Portuguese language and mm-hmm. it was uh, made in Brazil. Nominated for Best Director, Adapted Screenplay, Cinematography, and Film Editing in the Slums of Rio. Two kids, uh, two kids' paths diverge as one struggles to become a photographer and the other a kingpin. Um. This is also loosely based on a true story. Uh, the book is by a guy named Paulo Linz, who uh, lived this uh, experience. They actually show the real life footage during the closing credits of this movie. Um, he is uh, evidently the the photographer at the center of this. Uh, the, his name is Rocket in the movie. Um, and this is a film that I saw when I was a teenager in high school. Wow. That... Um, at the time I just thought it was like the most innovative thing in the world. Wow. Like, wow. like I just saw it and I'm like, oh, oh, like, like uh, this is going to, again, kind of sound like corny and lame, but like it finally felt like, Oh yeah, I can like really get into foreign cinema. <laughs> you know, it, it definitely felt like that, you know? And I, Oh, you self-righteous. No, yeah, <laughs> no, it's, it's actually, compl- I really, it, I mean to be self-deprecating here. Like, I, oh. under- <laughs> okay. I understand how ridiculous I was like all this great foreign cinema. Like Bergman is just sitting there and I have no yeah. idea what that fucking Bergman is. And I'm watching this single and I'm like, Kurosawa film. Exactly. <laughs> And I'm just like, hey, guys, you heard of City of God? Like, it's really like art house and indie and foreign. And I feel like a lot of film lovers of a certain age had a similar experience. Like, if you go on Letterboxd, for example, it is one of the highest rated movies on Letterboxd. Yes, it it's one of the highest rated movies on IMDb. IMDb. That's how uh, I saw it, by the way. When I was searching through IMDb, this is how I came across right. it. Right. Uh, it was a big uh, movie on Netflix when Netflix was first getting big. Like, I, I definitely went to college with a lot of people that really liked this movie. We talked about this movie a lot. I, I know people that I went to high school with that saw this movie um, and that um, that like it. My brother saw it at sort of a fairly young age and liked it. So uh, I don't mean to be a hipster about this, but it is one of those sort of gateway drugs. It's a movie that kind of works for the MTV generation while also being, I think, like a really good foreign movie. But it is not told with this sort of uh, like gross authenticity of, say, The Wire, which is like the story about the drug trade. I mean, it's, it's impossible to compare anything to The Wire, but this is a very stylish, very flashy, kind of simplistic sort of drug parable. Um, mm-hmm. And so I rewatched it again and I kind of I was watching it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, this movie rocks. It's super entertaining. And the filmmaking here is electric. It, it's yeah. a shame that. Uh, the director only went on to make like the two popes and nothing else. Really? Yeah. Um, like he, you know, he was like one of the guys in the early two thousands that was, uh, I don't, was this a Miramax movie? 
Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I think it was. But he was one of those like indie Miramax directors that was supposed to take Hollywood by storm. And he sort of just got lost in the shuffle of the early 2000s. Um, But uh, yeah, I kind of was like, oh, yeah, like, of course, the younger me loved this movie, you know, and that Uh, that's not an insult. Like, it's really good. Kids can like really good movies. And I think this one is really excellent. Um, Yeah, yeah, it's good. But yeah, you know what I'm saying? I suppose it depends on when you see it. I, I saw it much later. I, and I really should have rewatched it. Honestly, I it's, it's flashy enough. And I remember the story enough and the characters enough where it's like, I was comfortable enough talking about it. Um, the only thing now that comes to mind, like viscerally for me is like, hi, Tony Scott. Yes. (laughs) And it's it's just like a man of fire prequel is what it feels like to me. By the way, high school loved man on fire. I still like man on fire. Loved it. I still like man on fire. It's, it's, it's cool. Yeah. Uh, not really my style. Right. Even, I, I thought it was really well told. It's the best version of that style, whatever the hell it is, if you can deal with it. I'm, I don't know. It's like, I, I like experimental stuff, but I'm like this gray area of like experimental and formal, you know? Yeah. I'm not sure this is experimental though. This is kind of like a, well, a tried and true formula. Well, the story point, is, right? no, no, no. The story, but the filmmaking is, is not at all any, like, like you'd be, you, again, it's one of those movies you, you, you talk to the director and you, you think he's crazy for going at it this way. It's like, you want to make, it's like, I want to make a documentary and I want it to be the most stylish thing ever, which is, right. sounds like an oxymoron to me, but that's exactly what this movie feels like. Sure. You know, and I see where like Soderbergh gets a lot of his moves in the two thousands to a degree too. This just feels like that. I mean, if I never didn't, to this extent, no, but, yeah. no, but if I did, <laughs> Haywire is similar to this. Yeah. If I didn't know any better though, I might think it like if you, if I, you know, if I were just guessing directors i might stumble on guessing soderbergh for a movie like this okay yeah yeah there's a lot of traffic in this too. Yeah, yeah. yeah yeah it's a very sprawling like like epic though and i i, I kind of like it for that and i like the contrast between exploring someone who wants to capture the horror of the, the his world and the guy who wants to be you know a part of it or a creator of that horror, you mm-hmm. know? So that's sort of an interesting dynamic, you know, the, 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 the person who is just watching and the person who is carrying out these horrible actions. And it's the, it's interesting to watch. It's interesting to see one rise while the other falls. And it's satisfying in that way, just from storytelling uh, uh, purposes. And I, yeah, I, I enjoy, I, I remember really, really enjoying it. I don't have like a, a ton of negative things to say about it aside from, I guess the fact that the filmmaking is not ex- entirely my thing, Yeah, but it pops. It's unforgettable. Like the thing I, I, I mean, you know, I, I look for this all the time. I just want a movie that like sits with me and yeah, I, it's, it's not the type of movie that just leaves your head for sure. You said that it's sprawling and it is, there's a ton of characters in yeah. it, but the character dynamics are very simple. Okay. And, and I think that's why a, a, someone in high school that's just getting into film would really embrace it. Um, you know, the wire, for example, I, I keep coming back to it and it's a stupid thing to compare it to because it's totally different <laughs> besides yeah. the subject matter. But that is a story that's very sprawling. and has a lot of characters, but the sort of the political stuff, the socio political stuff is complicated and you really need to, you need to get into the weeds in order to fully understand it. Whereas this is, Oh, it's a psycho kid that goes on a murder spree and then he becomes a kingpin and then like his best friend dies and he gets revenge and like that, that's it. You know, like there's the, the romance is very simple. It's very childlike. There's, there's a lot of screen time um, devoted to the main character losing his virginity or trying yeah. to lose his virginity. Right. So um, it, it's, it's simple. It's easy to wrap your hands around. Even if like you, 
can't exactly keep all the characters straight. Um, it's not confusing. It's not. No, it's not so confusing. Um, and it, it is super fucking entertaining. It just pops like yeah. it, it moves. It's never boring. I understand why it did so well in Brazil. It was the number one uh, grossing movie in Brazil that year. And it's gone on to do very well in other countries. The uh, United States obviously has embraced it. So um, it, it's definitely pal- palatable to a, a, a mainstream audience. Um, does it feel like sometimes the the violence is sort of cast off and is, you know, glorified is not the word, but kind of just like, uh, I don't remember a lot of the violence in this movie. Yeah. I mean, there are scenes of like kids shooting other kids in the head. It's yeah. It's punchy in that way, particularly with the death for me of the, the psycho kid. Yes. I can't remember his name. Little Z. Little Z. He's really good in this movie. He's Uh, great. Really great in this movie. Great character. Uh, and I just remember his death feeling just, just so like kind of sad and pathetic. Yeah. You know, as horrible as that character was to see him gunned down the way that he was at the end of all that, you know, interesting character though, because he's kind of a good leader. <laughs> I mean, that's he's a good leader. Yeah. That's one of the things about it. It's like, yeah, this guy's clearly a psycho, um, and he should be put in a mental institution or just shot in the back of the head. Yep. Uh, but like there's peace when he's in charge. Well, though, it's just, but it does say something interesting about that society that it can accept a leader like that. There's a code. <laughs> yeah. But, but, sure. Right. I mean, I think it's a society desperate for a code, right? Yeah. Uh, it's desperate to end chaos. And they saw him as, although he's an agent of chaos. Yeah. I was going to say, <laughs> they saw him as a solution to the chaos. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, just, yeah. Like a, a movie with like a, a great sense of place too, to that, yep. to that regard. Um, yeah, that guy's great. Um, yeah, I, I just, it, it I, I don't even think it's dismissive. It just, whereas Come and See is a movie that is very stylized, it never feels like the violence gets lost in the style. Whereas sometimes the violence might get lost in the style here, um, which is not a, not a bad thing necessarily. I mean, there's a lot of like, highly stylized crime movies that I love, you know? It, this one definitely draws more attention to the style than Come and See is. I think they're both stylized films, but you really, the, the style of that movie really melts away when you situate yourself in the film or when the film pulls you into it, which it does so brilliantly. Yeah. Whereas this one, I will admit, I am very aware of how showy it is, basically throughout the entire film. Right. So there is that. Right. If I'm to criticize anything. Yeah. That being said... Just uh, all that classic, like, Rise of the Crime Lord, Tragic Fall. uh, It's going to work every time you put it on screen in front of me. And I like this location. Again, similar kind of, like, shitty bungalow location. Give me... Every movie should just take place in these horrible places. Half-built buildings. (laughs) Everyone is wearing tank tops and just these, these, like, like pajama bottoms and shooting people. Everybody's always barefoot. (laughs) I mean, kids just carry handguns out in the open. Like, I think, you know, that's more what it is. It's the dismissive way that guns are just in the movie constantly as if they're like just business for the character yep. to do. Like, yep, just like, yep, yep, yep. It, you know, it's, you know, you see like characters eating cereal or whatever at the, at the breakfast table. And that's what it feels like. It just feels like the kids are holding guns because it's something for them to hold. No, it's their way of life. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that it is so embedded into their way of life that they have a gun while they're eating breakfast. Yeah. is just such a troubling thing to wrap your head around. Yeah. But it's true. It's true. This happened. Yeah. It still happens. There are places in the world happens. where this happens. Yeah. Yes, it does. For sure. Um, yeah, I, I think uh so I don't want to sound like I'm kind of I'm kind of like lukewarm on the movie because it, it is again one of those like all-time favorites of mine. I I it's uh, one of those formative movies for me. Um 
I just watching it again, I, I felt kind of like, oh, this this belongs in 2002. Oh. This belongs in high school. This sort of belongs as this thing that we all loved, but it's not really, I, I think looking back 20 years from now, it's not sort of like the influential, like all time pantheon movie that a lot of us thought that it was. No, it, it's just sort of propped up that way, but I don't see it really. It feels like it came from that era for sure. And maybe that's the, the style. It could just be that. Because mm. I don't see a lot of people mimicking anything like this now, honestly. Mm-hmm. The closest thing you get is some of the things the Safdie Brothers is doing of all things. But they're coming from a different place. Totally different place. Totally different place. Uh, but that's it, you know? So, yeah. It's, so it, yeah, you're right. I think it does, unfortunately, sort of exist in, in the past in a lot of ways. Yeah. It doesn't have the same timeless quality that maybe it should. Like, it, it's not a movie that relies on the 2000s too heavily. So, yes. so you're kind of, yeah, in, in a way, like, I do kind of question, you know, why it hasn't had, like, maybe the same level of lasting staying power. I don't know. Right. Maybe it is just the style. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I still like it. I, I, I'm sorry. I still love it. I think it's a really good movie. Yeah, yeah, I think I mean, it's really entertaining. And like, put this on for maybe like your normie friend that isn't really into foreign cinema, <laughs> just to prove to them that it's possible that they can be entertained by something in a different language. Uh, yeah. Well, this is the, it's so fucking entertaining. Yeah. There's like there's only a handful of movies like that where it's like you don't even need to try. Like it doesn't matter what language it's in. People are gonna like Parasite's another one. Of exactly. Those movies. Right. Yeah. And Parasite is another one that's like number one on Letterboxd and IMDb and stuff. Like it's, it is number one on Letterboxd, that's right, yeah. Yeah. So. That's crazy. I think it it's it might have changed since I last saw it, but I think number one is Parasite, number two is The Godfather, number three is Come and See. Oh, wow. And number four actually might be City of God. I, really? Yeah, they're oh. all like sort of towards the top. I love, I, 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 li- I like City of God a lot. I don't think it's really, I mean. Let's look at it. Uh, number one is Parasite. Okay. Number two is Come and See. Really? Wow. Uh, Harakiri by uh, Masaki Kobayashi is number three. Still haven't seen that. Godfather's number four. Godfather two, number five. Okay. Twelve Angry Men, number six. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Cool. And then City of God clocks in <laughs> number 27. Okay. Okay. That's fair, I guess. Below Stalker and above There Will Be Blood. Ooh. Listen, I don't hate this list. I think calling Parasite the greatest movie of all time is a bit of a stretch, but it is way overblown on that website. I, I really love the movie, but Jesus Christ, it's not right. <laughs> it's not that good. High and low at eleven, eh. okay. Spirited Away at ten. I, I, I don't know. There's lots of phenomenal movies out there. I wouldn't even put Parasite in the top one hundred. Exactly. Yeah, Spider Man Into the Spider Verse is seventeen. <laughs> I just watched that last night again. <laughs> Great movie. So good. Yeah, happens. Yeah, it's, a, it's a fine list. Can you flow through the air when you smell a delicious pie? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Last, but certainly not least. <laughs> I, I, I saw no other context where I would ever nominate this. <laughs> so I had to throw it on here. It was the weirdest one when I looked it up, when I was going to watch it. I'm like, what the fuck is he doing? Nico, what are you doing? The King of Kong, <laughs> colon, A Fistful of Quarters from 2007. Seemed like the dumbest nomination in a while from you. Seemed like it. Directed so. by Seth Gordon, mm. who went on to make such great films as Horrible Bosses, Identity Thief, and Baywatch. The Holy Trinity of Comedies. I like Horrible Bosses. I do too. Starring Steve Wiebe and Billy Mitchell as themselves. Yes, as themselves, because this is a documentary. Die-hard gamers compete to break world records on classic arcade games. Uh, yeah, I, 
look, we don't talk about documentaries at all on this show. I think we did the concert films podcast once, yes, and that's the only context that we talked about it. Um, this is just one of my favorite movies of 2007, which is a classic film year. It could be the greatest film year of all time. I think it is right up there with the big five. I would probably put it at number six behind um, whatever. There will be blood, no country. Uh, Jesse, you think it's that good? Jesse James, I put over it. Uh, Ed Zodiac and and uh, Michael Clayton, I would put over it. But then I would put this at number six. Interesting. Yeah. Um, it's on the list. It's on my top ten. So there's, there's that. <laughs> yeah. So um, another movie I saw very young. It is. It's got to be my favorite documentary of all time. Wow. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Well, it's the most entertaining documentary I'm sure that you've seen in a while. It's close. Yeah, I think it's. Yeah, I think it's my favorite documentary of all time. Better uh, than Hoop Dreams. Jesus Christ. Oh yeah, we did talk Hoop Dude, Dreams. I don't know. Like, I mean, this could be like your personal favorite, but like Hoop Dreams is tremendously better than this. Yeah, Hoop Dreams is better. Yeah. Dear Zachary's better. Yes. Yeah. It's close. I, but I know what you... It's in my top five. I know what you mean, and I'll explain why in a bit. Go ahead. Explain why now. So there are movies. There are some... Like, I, I, I don't watch documentaries enough, and I'm, const, I'm constantly hitting myself over that, because every time I watch a documentary, I'm like, why don't you watch documentaries? See, anymore? I went on a phase for about four or five years where all I watched was documentaries. So like, I've seen all of these things. It's like... Eh, eh. Yeah, it's 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 a it's admittedly a, a little bit of a blind spot. I, I'm not like totally like like foreign to it or anything, but I could stand to watch many many more. Mm-hmm. You know, like like even recently when I when I watched uh, like a couple of years ago, um, um, uh, Free Solo. I'm just like, this is the right. most entertaining fucking movie ever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is no. so compelling. That's what a it's documentary so can do, though. It's like, oh wow, well, life is really stranger than fiction sometimes. <laughs> this movie is was i i would swear to you was cooked up in a writer's room uh-huh. where it's like everyone in here is a character right, right? Yeah. this premise is a stupid like sophomore comedy right right yeah. it's Every- seth rogan evan goldberg right? it, it's everything like oh billy mitchell he's not a real person <laughs> right <laughs> It's quite possibly the most entertaining documentary I've ever seen. It and it's slaps. Not even, it's, it's, <laughs> it slaps so hard, this movie. I, I was watching. I love it when this happens, by the way. I love it to death when this happens when I'm watching a movie. Is that I frequently will watch movies late at night just because it's the only time where everyone everything's quiet and it's dark and I can just sit with the film yeah. and cancel everything out. Yeah. But it also means I'm going to be very tired. Sure. So there are, there are instances where I don't always finish the movie and it makes me upset. Happens. But. I start. I threw this on at I want to say uh, uh, one o'clock in the morning. Yeah, uh-huh. and I had to work in the morning as well. Right. So <laughs> you're like, I'll do a half hour, well, then I'll doze yeah. off, and I'll finish it. Like, all right, it's just King of Kong. It's video games. I like Donkey Kong. Yeah, you like Donkey <laughs> Kong. Okay. And I was wired. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I could not fall asleep. <laughs> I love this movie. Oh, great. <laughs> This movie is a jam. It's so good. And my God, it's like, it, I watch it. I'm like, this can't be real. How are these people actual people? Who are you, Billy Mitchell? <laughs> Jesus Christ. What the fuck is this? How does such a villain exist in life? I was putting the movie together as it was happening. I'm like, oh, this is the guy we're stuck with. And this movie continues. I'm like, 
this is the villain of the movie, isn't it? Yeah. This is the this is like a like a comic book villain. No, it's fucking Luke Skywalker <laughs> and Darth Vader. Is what this Literally. Is. Yeah. <laughs> And then it keeps going. And I'm just like, wow, how does this happen? How did you, oh, Jesus Christ. And I've known people like that before too, to, in the gaming world. Not, not, not quite like Billy Mitchell, not quite like Billy Mitchell, no. but I've known people who have that level of ego over winning. Yeah. And uh, you fucking hate them. I have a little Billy Mitchell in me. No, you don't. A little bit. <laughs> not really. Uh, no, you don't. <laughs> I haven't beat you in a lot of things. It's also true. So <laughs> You've clearly never been in fantasy football. Well, so, uh, Nico, so therefore you don't have Billy Mitchell in you, apparently, because he only wins. It's true. And he only wins. Yeah, it's yeah. true. God, the way it forms him into the villain so naturally was yeah. just blowing my mind. I loved it so, so much. And to, to the point where he is up there with like top 10 villains of all time. I know. That's the same. I feel the same way. Not, not even kidding. I feel the same way it's, about it. It's so fantastic. And it's just a great unexpected discovery for a movie. It never happens. Yeah. And I'm just like, this is what? Rocky and Apollo Creed <laughs> yes. right here. Yes. Like, this is like, yeah. <laughs> Contrasted by how perfect of a human being steve weeby is right there's nothing wrong with the he's guy he's a fucking teacher yes yeah he's the most lovable guy and he's lovable because he's a fucking loser yeah he's a loser and the, and the way the movie creates a winner out of him mm. is the most delightful thing you, you're ever gonna see it's great storytelling god i love the storytelling in this documentary it's really man good. it's wonderful to like the fucking sycophants that are just hanging around billy mitchell like that guy what the hell is that guy's like, like something Call is an ugly name, but it was like the guy who quit his job right. just to play Donkey Kong. Like, who the fuck are you? Yeah. Who does that? Yeah. And he's just the worst human being ever. I, it's like, I, I quit my job to hopefully get to the kill screen. It's and I'm I'm gonna do it. I actually knew what a kill screen was, by the way. Uh, so, I did not going right. into this movie. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, really? You're gonna do that? And then two minutes later, <laughs> Steve gets to the kill screen. <laughs> it's, it's, the soul the the lack of soul in right. that guy's eyes and yeah. how dead he was, was yeah. the, you know i'm okay laughing at these people's misery that was that was one of the best, the best cuts ever you get the kill screen cut back to this guy yeah you beat me to it right you 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 gotta get so lucky as a yeah. documentarian i mean that's just the bottom line like you know you can say ken burns or whatever or errol morris or great documentarians but you really i mean being a great documentarian can only get you so far. Like the material has to come naturally with the story. You have to just be at the right place at the right time. You know, No, it goes beyond that though. To me, like what makes you think you have confidence in this story? It's a guy. It's about a guy's playing video games, right? It's just about people sitting at an arcade and trying to get a high score. What is enthralling about that right. to anyone just entering it? You know, mm-hmm. if I were to explain this movie to people, they wouldn't want to watch it. Well, let me try to explain it. So yeah. there's this guy, Billy Mitchell, who is known as the greatest classic arcade gamer of all time. He's number one ranked in the world. Guinness Book of World Records. Well, was. Well, yeah, we'll get to that. <laughs> Lists all of his high scores as the world record. Um, and most specifically um, uh, for the game Donkey Kong, right? So um, he had been recognized as this great gamer since the late 80s. And uh, throughout the 90s and into the 2000s, uh, continued his dominance. Um, one day, uh, Steve Wiebe who is this, again, just this teacher that plays Donkey Kong in his garage in his free time, uh, discovers that he's really good and films himself and ultimately sends in his tape to this arcade. What's the name of the arcade? Oh, God, I don't remember. Ah, shoot. Uh, But sends it into this arcade um, for verification to be like, hey, I got the record. I just passed a million Mm. 
uh, on uh, on Donkey Kong. That's like the new high score. And um, chaos sort of ensues from there. There's <laughs> yeah. a, a lot of controversy about whether or not a filmed high score can be counted as an official high score. Do you actually have to be in front of a crowd? Do you need someone there verifying it? Do you have to be in an arcade? Does the machine have to be tested? And like, can you use certain, you know, equipment? Like all of this stuff is, is uh, all these moral quandaries are posed in the gaming world. This all sounds so boring, Nico. It, right. It does. It sounds so fucking boring. But what you get is uh, <laughs> this really long saga, this back and forth feud between Steve Weeby, who is this underdog, heroic, naturally good figure, and this guy, Billy Mitchell, who I, the documentary more than just hints, it kind of accuses him of cheating. Um, and just sort of the back and forth is, as you said, I mean, these guys are just like cartoonish, um, but in yeah. like the best possible way. This is sort of uh, told as this comic book story, this this uh, this uh, battle between good and evil. And then at the end of it, the bad guy kind of wins uh but not really and it turns out like all the way in 2017 people uncovered that billy mitchell was cheating all along yep. <laughs> and all of the scores over 1 million were uh had to be null and void because he was using i guess fraudulent machinery like he was using machines that were allowing him to get extra lives in these games and they were also using trickery he was able to videotape the games as well yeah. so. so uh yeah apparently this guy's a total fraud yeah total uh wolf in sheep's clothing um and it should be obvious though anyone right. who talks that way is almost always a fraud exactly They're almost always full of shit but when you have the, the the supposed data in front of you to back it up it's just like oh my god it's the most frustrating thing in the world but this was supposed to be a documentary just about hardcore gaming and it was going to be just like a fly in the wall cinema verite like i'm going to see what these people are like and what the world of competitive gaming uh, is like um but then Seth Gordon, the filmmaker, found these two guys and he made the movie about them. And that's luck. It's just total luck. That's being in the right place at the right time, interested in the right stuff. And if you search hard enough, you're going to find these real life stories that belong in fictionalized movies. Um, but this one is real and <laughs> it's so goddamn entertaining. <laughs> yeah. And um, it's it's like one of my favorite sports movies of all time. Like it's, it's one of my just it, it's one of my favorite comedies. It's one of my favorite documentaries. I I just think like it's such a diamond in the rough, and mm. I'm so happy that you liked it. Um, yeah, it's really great. But I recommend this to anyone um, that just likes entertainment, populist entertainment. Yes, I agree. You know, yeah, you can't really go wrong. It's a sick day movie for like I, I would I would honestly watch this just to feel better. It's such a tremendous story. Yeah, it shouldn't be as good as it is. Yeah, shouldn't be anywhere near as good as it is. But God damn it, it's just. Oh, it's captivating. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love what you said, by, by the way, about a comedy, because my God, this thing is funny. It's so funny. Like with, with, with Billy Mitchell, is, it, it, most of it is, is surrounding Billy Mitchell, by the way. Yeah. Just, God, this guy's such a fucking loser. <laughs> but that's the thing. That's the interesting thing about him. Anyone who behaves that way, that is that insecure about their stature and their identity. Yeah. Is just the biggest loser in the world. Right. Like they really are. Yeah. They, they're, they, they carry themselves and talk about themselves like they're the ultimate winners. But, you're you're just tainting it the more you describe it that way. Yeah. I just I the first thing I thought of like when he was getting to the point where he was trying to orchestrate a sabotage of this guy that just wanted to beat him at Donkey Kong, I'm just like I literally said to the screen, God, this guy's such a fucking loser. Yeah. <laughs> He's such a fucking loser. I know. And that's the great irony of a character like that. It's like he doesn't realize how much of a loser he actually is. Yeah. You know. 
It's it's great. It's, it's just great. <laughs> what my, a film! I wear my tie to represent America. It's <laughs> yeah, red, white, and blue. It's just the worst thing I've ever seen. Yeah, you can't write this guy. No, you can't write this no. guy. Um, Billy Mitchell, too. Billy, Billy, Billy Mitchell, Billy Mitchell is just. <laughs> It's 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 almost the entire movie for me. Right. Oh, he is. Yeah, just, he's the entire movie. Just for me. one of the shittiest human beings I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> so loathsome. When he's like, like protect this tape with your life. Your life is on the line. <laughs> it is actually on the line. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> you fucking loser. Oh man, man, guys like that. Someone like Eric Bogosian and talk radio. These guys just fascinate me. I Eric Bogosia would crush this fucking dweeb. I know. Oh, my God. I know. Don't call into his show. No. Uh, all right. So I think we're on the same page here. These are six movies that we all just really like. Um, but there, there's there's one that I think stands above the rest. And that film is King of Kong. <laughs> <Yeah. quarters>. <laughs> <laughs> Billy Mitchell in the movie Hall of Fame. What? 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 <laughs> what is this? Yeah, baby. No, no. <laughs> yeah, baby. We can't let Billy, Billy Mitchell. Billy Mitchell's in. <laughs> what are you talking about? We let the the wolf in the hen house, Adam. I don't like this. We let Billy Mitchell in there. Fraudulent <laughs> records and all. He's in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> yeah. Mitchell. <laughs> uh, I guess I could put Cummins in too. I guess. If you want. I mean, if you want. I wouldn't mind it. I mean, it's a better movie. <laughs> it's it's essentially a perfect film. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's pretty perfect, and it's great. It's an impeachable. And, um, yeah, yeah. You just really want that King of Kong. I do love that King of Kong. So I'm so glad we got a chance to talk about <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, I'm glad we got to talk about it, dude. That was really good. I'm so happy. I'm it so was, happy you loved it. Yeah, I loved it. <laughs> I was trying to describe it to Abby, and it's like I was failing miserably. I, I was like, there's no way we're going to watch this. I'm like, Abby, it's so good. It's Please, so good. you would like it. She's like... Donkey Kong? <laughs> damn it. God damn it. <laughs> I know. Uh, I I give a hard recommend to all six of these movies. Yes, me too. I love doing these. I love sort of filling in the gaps. Um, mm-hmm. These are great. These are great. So good. Let's do this again sometime. Huh? Okay. I'm what do down. you say? I'm down. Cool. Best thing is that we don't have a lot of like like heated arguments. I like that. I like not yeah. feeling like I have to come at your throat and vice versa. Yeah, sometimes it's nice just to heap compliments on movies. You want one of my Pocky chips? I don't. Yeah, he, Adam comes in with a giant bag of ghost pepper <laughs> potato <laughs> chips. I mean, like a big bag. Like you don't not like a snack bag you pick up at the supermarket. Like you yeah. came in with the family party size bag. Yes, and I've eaten half of it. Yeah, it, it, it also like the stench of it combined with my COVID stench mm. is like, yeah, it's bothering the uh, the nostrils right there. Yeah, so opening up those sinuses. It is, it is. Uh, all right, we'll be back in two weeks. I don't know what we're going to be talking about. We'll be talking about something. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Something related to vision and the lack thereof. I think. Yeah, I'm gonna do it. We got to do an eye podcast. Eye pod- an eye podcast. <laughs> i'm getting lasik surgery on friday so that's what adam's alluding to yeah when, when i speak to you next i will be sans glasses you won't know because this is an audio medium so you would have no idea that uh i'm i'm a four eyes but i'm soon to be a two eyes again mm.
Looking forward to it. I've been told horror stories about LASIK surgery and the specifics <laughs> that go into it. There, but. there are so many clips from horror films that I just want to send you. Yeah. <laughs> I want to, I'm thinking of like the needle and evil dead, the remake. I'm just like, Oh, please Nico, you got to watch it. Yeah. <laughs> there, there are also some movies by the way that are out in theaters now that I think we need to talk about because the internet is a chatter. Yes, it is. With some of these things. We've had one of them. My brother watched the one we were discussing last night. Okay. Uh, and he liked it. Okay. <laughs> that might be a wise as a thing. I, I, I have I'm, not been spoiled on Malignant yet. So. I'm hearing stirs. Yeah, pretty dramatic stirs. I've watched Censor and I loved it. Okay. Um, as I said in, in the chat, I mean, it has an, an aspect ratio change where it is not even close. Every other aspect ratio change pales in utter comparison by this. Okay. Brilliant. I would almost say watch the movie for that moment. It's so good. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Really good movie. And yeah, I've, 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 I feel like I've seen a lot of movies we didn't talk about like, like on the past podcast, but I don't really need to go over those again. Yeah. I will definitely be talking malignant in some form. Yeah. Uh, I, I need to go out and see the card counter. I've just had like a really busy weekend and I, I didn't get a chance. Is that um, in theaters? That is in theaters. Paul Schrader directs uh, Oscar Isaac stars in a movie that again was birthed out of my <laughs> inner conscience. It's made for you. Yeah. So uh, I will be seeing the card counter at some point. Um, I heard like the voyeurs was pretty interesting on Amazon the this past voyeurs? week. It's okay. called the voyeurs. Uh, all right, all right. Yeah. There's some stuff. Um, so yeah. Oh, uh, uh, Cry Macho, the new Clint Eastwood film comes yeah, out in a few days. Yeah, the movie that's been trying to get made for ages now, but it's it's there. It's coming out. Clint. Yeah. Acting, getting on a horse. Getting back on a Throwing punches, apparently, in this movie. We'll see how that goes. We'll see. He didn't actually throw a punch. It was, he well, was, he didn't actually have threesomes in the in the, the mule, but... He didn't? No, but uh, it was depicted nonetheless. There's a threesome scene with that Clint Eastwood? Two threesome scenes. Why didn't you tell me about the threesome scene? How have you not seen the mule? The mule, Adam. You know I'm a big fan of threesomes. You know this, right? I'm aware. <laughs> aren't we all? Clint has two of them at the age of 90. We are led to believe that Clint, at the age of 90, can still get it up for an extended period of time to satisfy two women. <laughs> two women. Twice. The entire bottle of Viagra. Yeah. The entire box. Man, the mule is quite a movie. <laughs> the mule is like not I good, but it's so good. You oh know? God, it's not. <laughs> it's so good. It's not. It's bad. I, I, your esoteric takes sometimes are t- <laughs> where it's like, it's good, but it's not good. No, because it's, <laughs> it is a movie that it just nobody but Clint could have made it. You know what I mean? Like no fucking guy in his 90s could like make such like a poorly written like neo-western now um but yeah clint does it i'm I'm just all i'm just so like amused by the fact that clint is still working you know yeah and that's why i'm excited to watch cry macho this weekend but you're gonna um, watch it this weekend well i actually won't be able to because i'll have lasik that day yeah oh no i'll watch it it's affecting my macho time where is it gonna be in theaters or available on mm, H- hbo max as uh, well uh, all right it's I'll ch- current release i'll check it out i'll yep. check it out there's yep. a few movies that we all we all got to see yeah all right, that's it. Uh, join the Discord if you want more of this. If you want to tell us what movies to watch, if you want to hear our thoughts on some of these things, uh, interact with us on the Discord. Join with the link in the description for this podcast. Uh, rest in peace to Michael K. Williams. Mm. Uh, absolutely rest in peace to Norm MacDonald, yep, the yep. king, the legend, uh, the one and only. 
And uh, I love you. Before you play me out, you got to ask me who I am or how I am. Oh, until next time. Adam, how are you? Haven't you heard? I'm perfect. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.